Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. On this episode, episode 58, the essential entry-level guide to overlanding by motorcycle. All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I'm going to give a shout-out to some people who have really helped the show incredibly this past month or so with the support of $50 or more. Here we go. Jan Olav Victorson, Alan Cavett, Mariah Schiller, George Maldonado, and James Sperling. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to have people that appreciate what we're doing here and support the show. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on the show, just like you heard me do. We also send out some cool Adventure Rider radio stickers for your bike or your toolbox, and we'd love your monthly support on our Patreon account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support for more information about that. Today, right now, coming up, we are putting together a collaborative guide. This is the essential entry-level guide to overlanding by motorcycle. Here we go for Adventure Rider Radio Raw, November 2020. We travel to the beach of our own drum down here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my, well, many of my esteemed regular Overland co-hosts, but first, we have a guest co-host, and I want to begin with her, Michelle Lampfair. It is great to have you back. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back. Where are you located? I'm in Custer, South Dakota at the moment, where I live. Custer. Does that name have anything to do with General? It, it does, actually. Custer was the first town founded in the Black Hills uh, in the mid-1870s when gold was found here during the uh, General Custer expedition through the Black Hills when they were mapping the area. So the town is named after him. The county is named after him. Uh, yeah. Wow. You have a motel and a sort of a traveler stop. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Um, I bought, uh, well, I managed hotels professionally as an executive for 20 some years. And um, after my two years in the Americas by motorcycle, came back and was having a hard time fitting back into that type of work routine. So bought my own place, a little 16-room motel, the Chalet Motel in Custer. And I've got uh, just a small little group of cabins and am very, uh, very seasonal. So I, I'm already closed for the winter season. I will open again in May and I'm open about five or six months of the year, depending on the weather. Mm, that, that could work out really well. I mean, if it was different times, you could actually go and do other things in the wintertime. Well, in theory, yes, but maybe not this year. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's changed for everybody. <laughs> well, yeah. that's great. And, and it's just so nice to have your back and, and hear your voice. Um, Grant Johnson is going to be joining us in, in about an hour. So we're going to start off without him. Graham won't be with us today. We have everyone else here, but I'm going to start with um, Shirley and Brian, Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks from Australia. Shirley and Brian, what's happening in your neck of the globe? Well, it's coming to summer here, but I'd just like to say the Black Hills of South Dakota, some of the best riding in the U.S. Mm. Where Michelle is, she's she's very lucky to be living there. Yeah, I agree with that. A a great part of the world, Michelle. And, uh, yeah, the, the riding weather over here has been fantastic. And uh, I've worn out a set of tyres already. I'm, I'm, I've got to go and take a wheel off and go and get a new set of tyres for a ride next week. <laughs> Brian is now mating, making fleeting visits to home. Wow. <laughs> Most of the time he's, he's away riding. So 
summer and it's not very hot yet it's only about 30 degrees most days which is really good because once we get into the heat of summer it'll be up into the 40s <laughs> and hotter so um it's perfect riding weather, weather now before we get into the peak of it summer is indeed yes wow. and our friends in melbourne who'd been in lockdown are, are now free because we are uh, have had no covid uh infections since uh, for the last 11 days so all my mates are champing at the bit to get up into the hills and ride so we're meeting up and uh, heading up into the hills and um, playing havoc in the in the um, in the hills of uh, Victoria party at the Rex's and make sure you skim the pool <laughs> yeah I was in there yesterday <laughs> Sam Manicom is in the UK, still in the UK. I don't, I don't think you're going anywhere, Sam. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Somebody accused me of having square wheels yesterday, and I was thinking, yeah, it probably is a bit that way. Well, well mm. you don't have square wheels. You've got a, a beautifully tuned, pretty much brand new machine now. Oh, I do. After all this sweating and fussing and bothering and virtually rebuilding Libby over the last months, um, problem solving, which just led that, me down all sorts of blind alleyways, but various bits and pieces of work got done along the way, which needed doing. Um, I finally got her sorted out and went out for a test ride and... Um, it's it's like riding a bike that's got 150,000 miles less um, than she actually really does have. Spring chicken again, just, um, yeah, really smiling. But, of course, it was in perfect timing for us to go straight down into lockdown because we haven't got our act together here. So um, we're getting massive infections and the death rates have gone up and all of this sort of stuff. But um, on the positive side of things, it's been an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous November day and Exeter day. You know those sorts of days where you get blue sky and all of the leaf colours are just out in all their full glory. And I haven't ridden anywhere, but we did go out for a few walking miles and it's just absolutely gorgeous. The rest of the day, I've been at my desk um, and... Michelle may be wanting to talk about this. One of the things that I've been up to later on, so I'm going to shut up about it, but I'm just giving her the cue there. But um, <laughs> one of the things that I've been doing um, or carrying on doing today, I've been having some real fun over the last weeks. Many of the photos that I took on film during the big trip were damaged either by heat and vibration or by the developers. And I've been having some fun by digging out shots that many of which have never been seen before other than, oh gosh, what a mess that is back in the envelope. And I've been bringing them back to life and I've been sharing them um, with the tales that went with those photos. So if any listeners are in touch on Facebook or Instagram, then you guys have probably seen some of the posts and there are going to be more coming. It's really nice um, to be doing this and to be reliving the memories and the people as well as the places that go with those photos. It's kind of fun. It's, it's a good use of lockdown time. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. It's really nice to see because you, you give quite an explanation of what the photo is. You're not just posting a photo and saying this is here. You're sort of giving the, the story behind it, which is which is quite nice. Obviously, the best way to get your stories is to buy your books and then you'll get uh, the complete adventure. But this is kind of like in addition to it, I like it. You know, it's, it's sort of throws in stuff that you don't know. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the stories that I'm writing about, I might have touched upon in the books, but actually get a fuller story because the photograph um, just sparks that off. And I've been getting messages from people who are saying, oh, I'm reading the book where you've just been writing about that section. It's really nice to see a photograph that goes with it. So it's good fun. Um, lots, of, lots of fun conversations happening. So if you're not following Sam on Facebook and Instagram, you're missing out. 
you should follow him. Look him up and follow him for these uh, these photos and stories. Oh, great. Connects if you can. Well, um, today we are, our, our topic is an entry-level guide to overlanding by motorcycle. Now, one real common question that, that comes up, and I'm sure if Grant Johnson was here right now, he would be able to tell us all kinds of stories about this, is how do I get started in overlanding by motorcycle? And it's a valid and sensible question because like most things, once you begin to do research into something, looking for answers, the search inevitably generates more and more questions, probably more questions than it does answers in a lot of cases, at least to begin with. And then where do you turn for the answers? Well, today we're going to try and offer some guidance on overlanding by motorcycles for those that are new. And I'm sure there's going to be some nuggets in there for those that are experienced riders and everyone in between, because we have a lot of experience on this panel right now. And of course, like I mentioned, Grant will be coming in uh, later on and he will also add a load to it. Today's RAW is an entry-level guide to overlanding my motorcycle. Now, we could probably go on for days and days, but what we're attempting here is to create more of um, sort of a, a mind map, maybe a cerebral lay of the land, so to speak, of overlanding by motorcycle. And I think, as I said, this is with many things you find, I think with anything, I've always said, and I've said on the show before, I believe that, you know, when you get to the point where you're looking at something and you realize how little you know, that's when you're starting to get a look of the lay of the land. You've climbed the hill, you've looked into the distance and you can see the fields over here and the ocean over there and and the mountains and some settlements. And you get a lay of the land, you think, wow, this is really big. Well, well, that's what we're we're sort of trying to do today is to try and give that that sort of the lay of the land. I think um I think what it'd be good to start with is to start with talking about the difference between adventure riding and adventure travel. Now, this is sort of new, and we've talked about it a few times on this show, the the difference between the two. Sam, you want to take that on? Mm, Yeah, I'd love to. Um, There's actually a huge overlap between the two, and in many ways, there's actually no difference. And I think it may well be that we've all got different images in our minds as to what the difference between the two actually are. But for me, I'm, I'm fairly clear. So, for example, for me, adventure riding, well, I think of adventure riding as mostly being done at home and in neighboring countries, and it's usually shorter trips. So it could be a day, a week, um, um, a weekend, a month, a couple of months. Um, After that, it tends to overlap into adventure travel. And I think... um, Adventure riding is usually within um, with recovery as a possibility. It might be a mate with a truck or being towed to the main road by by a mate where recovery can happen. But I think adventure riders tend to ride harder, really testing themselves and their machines, which is quite different to adventure travel. Um, they seem less afraid of breaking their bikes and perhaps because they're insured and the rider usually has a job that can pay for any damage. Um, for for me, adventure travel or overlanding, this is where a person tends um, to plan to be on the road for a longer time, be that a couple of months or several years. And the plan might be, for example, um, to ride within the USA, Canada, India, Australia, whatever, um, to spend that amount of time exploring their own country, um, as well as going overseas. And I don't think adventure travel has to be outside of one's own borders, though I think it usually is. Um, the journey tends to be 
about riding a motorcycle and the buzz of riding a motorcycle, but all of the possibilities and the flexibility that it can give the rider to learn about other countries, the, the history, the culture, the geography, what makes people laugh even. I mean, Uganda leaps into my mind um, straight away with that. Ugandans have this real Buster Keaton sense of humour. Um, it's it's really slapstick, but um, Ugandans laugh really quickly. There's no um, airs and graces or pretension or cleverness to the humour. It's just funny. If something looks funny, then everybody cracks up laughing. And it's these sorts of things that I know I love to learn about um, when adventure travelling. I think adventure travellers tend to be really careful with their bikes. They nurture them and themselves because frequently they're in places or they're heading to places where a big bend would just be the end of a, a long work for dream. And riders know that this perhaps might be the only chance that they have. And, and I'm rattling here. I've, I'm, other people, I'm sure, have got definite ideas on this too. Um, always come back to me later if I've got something that I've missed out on my, on my thoughts. No, that's really good. That was very good. Michelle, anything to add to that? Boy, I don't know how I could. That's I think Sam has captured it perfectly. And I, I would agree. I, I'm inclined to think of adventure riding as more um, something off-road, uh, maybe a little more adventurous, rugged, um, the different kinds of terrain that people are riding. And, and I think Sam has said it perfectly that people are maybe a bit more willing to take chances. But with adventure travel or adventure motorcycle travel, there's certainly that degree of of risk uh, because you're riding certainly in some some uh, backwater or backcountry parts of different uh, places in the world. So you certainly have still off road riding that you need to do, but I think you're more conscious of it and a little a little bit safer uh, when it comes to risks because you're in it for the longer term, or at least. I think that's my perspective. The adventure motorcycle travel component is that you're looking at it for a longer term. So you need to stay a little bit safer. Um, yeah, but you're still out exploring and, and really delving into that culture. It's the difference for me between flying into a location for a holiday versus traveling overland there and really kind of absorbing the culture, the local life, the small towns, every little aspect of it from the food, the music, the culture, the landscape, all of it. And adventure motorcycle travel allows you to immerse yourself completely uh, in that extra in-depth way. Mm -hmm. Brian? Yeah, when I uh, first looked at this topic, Jim, I thought I wrote two words down. Toby Price and Dakar, and you know that's that's adventure riding to me. Oh, but everything Sam and Michelle have said is spot on about uh, adventure um, riding is uh, right on the edge. It's like you're skimming the surface, and uh, um, tra adventure travel on a motorcycle is about absorbing, like being a sponge. So skimming versus a sponge, to me, is what it's about. Um, yes, um, people who do adventure riding probably do take more risks with themselves and their motorcycle. And uh, how often do you hear, oh, yeah, I broke my leg, I fell off my bike, or I broke my bike, or I buckled a wheel, or I did this and that. And when you're uh, looking at adventure travel, you are, one, looking after yourself, looking after your machine, the longevity. You are uh, taking a long journey, not a short hop here and there. And I've met a couple of guys who I would class as really good off-road riders who then go adventure travelling and they push the limits too far. And I think it then becomes a mindset about um, what you're doing 
and um, you know you might have all those skills. But if you back off a little bit and soak in and, and be that sponge, it's probably a better journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, obviously. I think what everyone said encapsulates most of it. The only thing I'd add is with adventure travel, Sam, you were saying that, you know, leaving your borders, going into new countries, but when you live in a place as vast as Australia and uh, the US and Canada, you can do a lot of adventure travel without um, without leaving your borders. I mean, our countries are so vast that you can go from the beach to the, the mountains across deserts uh, in a, a one-month, two-month two-week trip. I absolutely so, um, agree. Yeah, totally. But that means we're just lucky, Sam, because we live in a vast country. Yeah, your and, island's a bit bigger uh, than mine. we have that opportunity. <laughs> but then the other side of it is you are, um, when you can, you can hop on a ferry and you're in a totally different culture, different languages. You ride for another day and you can't read the road signs, so you have those advantages too. But um, adventure riding is risky, but then again, I know people that, um, excuse me, we're talking to right now who have broken bones (laughs) on adventure travel trips, but I'm not saying anything, Michelle or Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that. Hang on a second. I've got a brain itch for a moment. Let me just scratch that. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, one of the things about adventure um, riders is that, and there are going to be people who are listening to this and they're going to shout me down mentally on it, but I think a lot of adventure riders have far better riding skills than many people who set off to do an adventure travel journey. Um, I watch some of the guys who adventure ride and I just think, wow, look at what you've just made that motorcycle do. That's phenomenal. How did you get it up that slope? And how did you turn it down so, around so quickly? And all of those sorts of things. And I think it's it's a different skill set and mindset um, between the two. And I respect both sides thoroughly. In the end, what matters is that um, the rider is out exploring and smiling in whatever way they can. Um, but I think that many people go adventure traveling on a motorcycle and the motorcycle is a combination of a passion and a tool. In other words, it's going to be a tool that gets them to somewhere where they can learn so much. And I also think um, a lot of people who go adventure traveling hit the road because they're fed up with being told that other people, skin color, language, religion, et cetera, et cetera, are dangerous people. And they've picked up enough to know that this isn't true, but they want to go out and find out for themselves because there's not enough depth in what they're being told. But I tell you what, I don't think anybody sitting around this virtual table tonight is going to disagree that the friendliness of the world that people discover when they're on an adventure travel is one of the most wonderful things out there. Absolutely. Hey, Michelle, I'm curious, you know, the difference between adventure riding and adventure travel as far as you see, as far as you think, intensity level. Do you think they both offer the same intensity? And the second part of the question is, if you had to associate music with either one, give us one piece of music for either one. Oh my gosh, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, Well, I I think intensity, I think they're both very intense, but I think in different ways. I think from an adventure riding standpoint, Sam's brought up a good point. The skill level that some of the riders have is just phenomenal to see what people can do and how they stay upright is mind-boggling to me. Riding in sand is still definitely a skill set I have not mastered. I dread it every time I come across it. Just kind of uh, treat it as the slog that it is and get it over with. (laughs) um, 
you know, I, I think it's very intense in terms of writing skills in that way. Adventure travel can be very intense from the standpoint that you are uh, oftentimes find yourself uh, dealing with language barriers in different cultures, in different environments, just trying to get your bearings, understand how, um, how just to live daily life. Where do I get money? Where do I get food? Where do I get um, fuel? How do I buy that? How do I get parts for my bike if I'm in a foreign country? Where are things? So it's it's intense from that standpoint, maybe not to the same degree, but for a longer period of time. So I think both can be exhausting and very intense in very different ways. Um, and as far as music, gosh, I, I, I wouldn't consider myself maybe an adventure writer, but I will say from... Uh, my perspective as an adventure motorcycle traveler, um, my my name of my bike is Betty. She's a black uh, 2011 KLR. And Betty is named from the song that was stuck in my head forever, Black Betty. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. So that song yeah. always pops up in my head. So I, I have to say that's my tune for, for your question. <laughs> Can you sing a line of that song for those who haven't heard it? Thank, <laughs> thankfully for you all, I cannot. You'll have to go Google it. <laughs> go on, I'll do it. No, don't do it. It's okay, Sam. No, Sam, no. The thing is, I'll remember tunes and make up words. When I'm in my helmet riding along, I don't remember lyrics, so I make them up. So, no, I, w- I won't venture out there, but... <laughs> Hey, so we're going to gloss over these topics, as we said. Um, we we want to talk generalities, I guess, more than specifics. We're not going to be given, you know, getting into real details because you can see even just by our first thing here, um, it, it takes a. There's a lot in it. There's there's a lot involved with it. So, Sam, I want to go back to you um, to kick things off. Are, are are we looking at the figuring out what what our trip is about, our purpose? I think identifying the purpose of your trip is one of the most important things you can do um, when you're at the planning stage as a novice. And before I say anything else, I want to say that I've never forgotten the magic mix that being fresh to adventure travel is. The buzz, the nervousness, the anticipation, the curiosity. And I hope that I never, ever set out on a trip without having those sensations in the build-up. Even though I've learned uh, a bit, um, the value of of those sensations is just phenomenal. And I think... The more you learn, the more you realize that there is that you can learn. But one of the most important things is working out what sort of trip you want to have because that guides you in just about everything that happens next. Um, It might be that you want to ride gnarly trails in foreign countries. It might be that you want to have as as much in-depth cultural experience as possible. It might be that you just want to ride. Um, It might be that you want to definitely hit a series of destinations. But knowing those sorts of things really helps you focus and that gives you a chance to max out on your trip. But it also helps you um, learn about who you are and what I mean by that is, why go somewhere that everybody says you should when actually it frightens you or simply doesn't interest you? Um, go somewhere that spark, that sparks you, um, that makes you interested in what's going out. And also, and it comes down to the basics. If you identify what sort of trip that you'd like to do, then that helps you with your equipment choice, your gear, your maps, and all of those sorts of things too. Brian and Shirley. Um, 
how, how does your purpose change the trip? How, how do you think that the purpose changes the way you look at your trip? And I'm also curious, do you guys always have the same purpose? Oh, no. We never have oh. the same purpose. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> no, no, we do no. not. <laughs> no, we do. But yeah. the, 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 when we did our first trip, um, what we wanted to achieve uh, was what um, guided our trip. We wanted to ride from England to Australia. Oh, firstly, from Australia to England. Well, yes, then we worked out the weather was going to be woeful, so we changed it and rode from England back to Australia. But when, when you put that down as the parameter for your trip, the route you take is what's going to guide the, the sort of journey that you have. Um, so in that respect, um, it was what we wanted to do was the first thing that then set out how we were going to achieve it, if you get my drift. I, I, I think it, you have to prioritise. It can be all of that. It can be everything. Uh, gnarly trails, it can be uh, nice roads, it can be a destination. But you prioritise what you want. For example, I wanted to go to the Isle of Man. Um, so there's the destination. But how do I want to get there? I want to ride a motorcycle. I want to ride all the best roads that I can find between here and there. And if, if uh, with a bit of local knowledge, there might be a, a trail and then you prioritise whether you're going to do that trail or not, depending on one skill level, bike size all, and all sorts of things. So it's a little bit of both. And, yes, it, it, it can be dis- determined by – what you want to achieve. For example, I can't think of the guy's name, but Grizzly, who's a, I think he's a Swedish guy, wanted to ride his motorcycle in every country as quick as possible. Well, okay, that's that's his goal. Um, that's not my goal or nowhere near my goal or many other people's goals. But that's what he wanted to do and he did everything to achieve that and set everything up so that his bike would um, he'd, he'd arrive at a destination where he, he couldn't ride across oceans and stuff like that so that there'd be a plane um, spot reserved a, a fr- on a freight plane or something like that for him ready to go so he could do it as quick as possible. Well, that's, to me, uh, his priority so you set your priorities. Um, but for adventure travel, I really think it's a bit of a mixture of everything. Um, what do you think? And, Jim, we do um, actually discuss things at length. Oh. So by the time we hit the road, we're basically on the same page. Oh, so you, you, you've, you've talked about all the possibilities and whether you're focusing on, like, because Brian mentioned roads there. I noticed he leaned into that right away, and I can picture him being very excited about the roads. But I'll bet that's not your, your, your goal. No, um, I mean, yeah, sometimes. I mean, I love some of the roads that we we go on, but other times I think, well, yeah, it's a road, but what's at the end of it is going to be um, a, a great highlight for me. But it's a different All the view. Sometimes we've we've been riding on roads. You've been grizzly. It's cold. It's wet. It's miserable. Yeah. And we come around the corner, <laughs> and she'll say, "Wow, stop." Yeah. So if all is forgiven when he takes me, <laughs> so there's a good view. <laughs> But, you know, the other thing you've got to consider if you're doing gnarly trails and that kind of riding, if you're doing a, a big trip, you've also got to consider how heavy your bike's going to be and all the gear you're going to be travelling with. And the fact that you're like a little snail, what's on that bike is your world for the period of time that you're away. So um, I think you have to be a bit cognizant of looking after your world. 
let's just maybe think about a change, uh, a difference between adventure riding and adventure travel. An adventure rider tends to have the minimal amount of equipment to enhance the trip and with survival in mind. And an adventure traveler has their home on the back. Mm. Yeah, very true. True. Michelle, anything to add on identifying your purpose? Um, Yeah, I I mean, I think that people can come at adventure travel from a number of different avenues. Definitely from the gnarly trail, go out for a ride standpoint um, or a destination. For me, it was certainly um, a combination of that. I started with one and that was the destination. I was bound for Ushuaia. That was where I wanted to go. Um, And originally the plan was to be able to do that in six months to a year. And I think I was so focused on the destination in the beginning that because it was my first big trip that I really wasn't thinking of, you know, different ways of looking at it. But two weeks into my trip, as Shirley alluded to (laughs) earlier, I I had a change of plans. I had an accident, broke my leg. um, So I was laid up. And unfortunately, it took me three months to get back on the bike. And that changed because of the seasonality of riding into Ushuaia. My timing was off and I wasn't going to be able to get to Ushuaia in the time frame before winter set in because it's, of course, a snowy ski town. Um, It wasn't going to be possible for me to get there. So that gave me a choice. I came to a crossroads. I either needed to reevaluate the destination or I needed to keep the destination and reevaluate my timeline and then work on filling up that timeline with, with other things that I wanted to do along the way. And that's exactly what I did. So for me, then it became kind of a collection of, of different things. I remember looking up UNESCO World Heritage Sites and thinking, oh, well, I'm going to add some of those to the, to the route and changed actually the route that I took um, to add in a few more countries and then kind of zigzagged through countries at a much slower pace because I then had to wait almost a full year to delay my arrival point to Ushuaia. Um, so, yeah, it was a combination of things for me. Um, I, was just, I, I was just thinking about your book, Michelle, and I think your book was a far finer thing because of the disaster that you started off with, because it, your, your journey was just that much richer because you saw the positives and adapted accordingly, rather than um, thinking, oh, well, that's it, no, it's off, not going to happen, and going somewhere else, because the dream was so strong and it remained strong. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you uh, I love the way that you handled that. Well, that's very kind of you. I I can say the experience was that much richer because of my accident. As as strange as that sounds, I'm sure to many people, I've I've jokingly referred to it, touch wood, as my lucky break um, because it really was such an incredible experience. (laughs) It was a twist on my plans, and maybe that's exactly what I needed. um, Because yeah, it's definitely a twist on my leg. Um, but what an incredible opportunity to unethic- slow down. It's not a good thing to recommend to other people. Now, the best <laughs> way to have a trip is in the first month, break your leg <laughs> and then plan again. Great advice. Yeah. Great advice, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, we'll put a link in, in the show notes uh, to your book. And what is the name of the book and where can you get it? Um, it is called The Butterfly Root or route, excuse me, <laughs> the butterfly route. Um, it's available on Amazon either in an e-format or a paperback copy. Very nice. And thank you. 
So, um, anything else to add to, to identifying the purpose? Sam, I, I had one question I wanted to put it to you um, about mm. identifying the purpose. Is there a right and a wrong? No. No. Um, everybody's an individual. Um, it, it's one of the reasons why I think that working out what sort of trip you like the sound of as, as who you are when you're planning um, the, the trip is such an important thing because it means that you're not necessarily going off and meandering and riding 10 miles past something that's just absolutely incredible. And two weeks later, you're going to think, darn it, why didn't I go and see that? Um, why didn't I take that ride? Why didn't I do- stop at the Brian and Shirley viewpoint? Because I didn't even know it was there. Mm. Um, but the point is that as you travel, even though you've worked out in advance what sort of trip you want, the road's going to change you. You're going to be a different person. You're going to grow and you change and you learn more things and um, your personality and your desires will change as a result of. But having that first kickoff point, that's really valuable, I think. Mm, that's a really good point. Even talking about Michelle's story. So you want to identify the purpose of your trip, but you also have to have that word flexibility in there. Mm. Yes. You're going to grow. And I'm not necessarily talking about your trouser um, line. That's actually going to shrink. <laughs> why is that? Why, why do you lose weight when you travel? Um, I lose weight when I'm traveling because I'm constantly active. I'm doing stuff all of the time unless I'm asleep. I'm on the move. I'm riding the bike. I'm loading. I'm walking around looking at things, whatever else it may be. Crashing. Um, and, yeah. All right. Shut up, Jim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So far, nobody's asked me how many times I've fallen off my bike, and I'm not going to answer because I don't know. <laughs> I was just going to say, is that number even attainable? Like, can you can you can you quantify that? <laughs> uh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I've moved to sideways. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I guess the the next thing we we're we're going to tackle here is solo or not, Brian. Um, <laughs> when you're planning a trip, do you side, decide whether you're going to go solo uh, or what you're going to take Shirley? And and of course, in this, we're also talking. In all seriousness, we're talking about group or or guided tour or or a buddy to ride with. Uh, Brian, yeah, yeah. Look, um, in my younger days, of course, I did a lot of solo riding and really enjoyed the fact that I was out there by myself and uh, just taking it all in. And we've been lucky enough to experience it all. Experience it all. You know, solo riding, pillion riding, and group riding, and guided tours. Group riding is it, it, it can be good, and it can be frustrating sometimes when you want to do things, or uh, someone doesn't want to do what you want to do, or there's dynamics within the group that can be a little bit testing over time. Um, uh, I recently travelled around Australia with a group of guys and we're all different and, you know, we start off and we're all good. And, but as time goes on, there's little things that happen perhaps, but the dynamics don't quite work with a couple of guys and you've got to find your space and you've got to be uh, upfront and say, oh, yeah, well, I, I don't want to particularly do that. You go and do that and we'll meet up with you in a day or two or whatever, whatever it might be. Guided tours are a more regimented in some extent, uh, they have they can be great, they really have great. Huge advantages um, sometimes for the novice. If someone yeah. is really wants to do a trip but feels that they haven't got the wherewithal to do it, if they do a tour, that 
will either show them that they're going to love doing touring with groups of people for the rest of their days or that they are capable of doing it themselves. So yeah. you can't, you shouldn't poo-poo any idea um, of a trip, be it if you want to travel on your own, if you want to travel with a group, if you want to do a tour. The fact that you're getting out and doing something and seeing something outside your own backyard is marvellous. Yeah. Our last guided tour, which um, we don't usually do a lot of them, but with our friends, was uh, in Kerala in India. And uh, I just sent the completed story for a magazine I did over to Dan in um, Kerala and uh, it brought back some really fond memories of that particular trip. It was high end, staying in beautiful tea plantations and things like that that we we would be lucky to find. And also the local knowledge that he had took us on roads that if we looked at a map we wouldn't be able to find. So, yeah, pros and cons for everything, for all all, um, forms of travel, Jim. Yeah, for, for guided tours, I have to jump in there because um, coming from tourism, for guided tours, there's no doubt there is a huge advantage of dealing with somebody who's local who really knows the area that you're going to see. They can point things out that you would otherwise miss. Um, Sam? Um, yeah, I absolutely get it with the guided tour um, side of things as well. Being able to tap into somebody's expertise um, is just uh, has to be a wonderful thing. Um, I've done it from the other side round um, in that I've been a holiday rep. And so taking people out and about and um, being able to show them places that they would never be able to find, it's it's just a real joy to do from that side. But when Birgit and I um, are on the road and we'll go to um, a big city, then very often we'll take a guided tour around the city because that gives us a perspective to the city. It, showed, it shows us places that we definitely want to spend more of the time that we do have available. Um, and just gives us that much more um, of a perspective and understanding. And I, I, I like that. And I've most spent most of my life doing most of my journeys, whatever form it's been, um, traveling on my own. Um, but I link up with other people along the way sometimes for a week here, a couple of weeks there. And then it's always done on a very amicable sort of basis. And sometimes people, you know, after two weeks of riding together, somebody said, well, um, actually, I'm going to Kenya. And I'm, well, actually, I want to go down into Tanzania next. Um, so just the split happens and, and that's good fun. Um, and then I met Birgit and life changed quite radically. And I grew to love traveling with somebody that I really want to travel with. Um, we were laughing the other day because we've been traveling together for so long. We've now started starting sentences and the other person finishing them. And so often we've got it exactly right for each other. And that's what it's like when we're traveling. Just the whole business of sharing the load so in other words, for example, border crossings, picking the bikes up, um, going into a hotel, whatever else it may be, but also sharing those moments of sheer joy, those moments when you don't need to say a word because whatever you're looking at, it just has you speechless. The value of being able to share that with somebody else is absolutely fantastic. I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody's different and there is no right way to go. Every way has its advantages and its, its disadvantages. And I think as we all go through life, then we adapt how we travel according to how we are at the time and the opportunities that are available to us. I certainly wouldn't turn down any of those options of um, ways of travel. For for my two cents, I've not done a guided tour before, um, but I, I certainly see that there's some 
great benefits to taking a guided tour, especially for someone who's maybe just getting their feet wet and traveling overseas or traveling in a foreign country. What do you think that, and I don't want to cast you in this position, Michelle, but I just, you just happen to be there. Um, what are the disadvantages? I mean, what would you see are, the, are some of the disadvantages of, of any one of those things? Oh, gosh. Well, there can be advantages and disadvantages to each. Certainly with solo travel, um, for me, the disadvantage would be crossing more borders. I really felt like traveling with someone um, in partnership or having a friend or a companion or a partner with you when you're crossing a border seemed to be safer in terms of someone being able to stay with the bikes. Um, Keep an eye on the bikes, um, hold down the fort, maybe even run to get water if you're in an extended line trying to get through. Um, So there's some benefits for, for not traveling solo like that. I think that traveling with a group or a guided tour has less flexibility. So if you're a person who wants to stop and take a lot of photos, or if you want to you know, see a track on the side of the road that you want to run down and see what's down at the end of it. You're not going to have that flexibility with a guided tour or perhaps with a group unless the other group members have that time allowance and have that interest that you do to pursue some of that. Mm -hmm. So I I think, um, yeah, to each his own. I think the different kinds of trips that you take can be either improved or maybe uh, inhibited in a way, depending on how you travel. Some trips are meant more for solo travel. Some trips are better when you're traveling in a group or with a guided tour. I can imagine someone who is intimidated by possibly, you know, flying into a foreign country, doesn't speak the language, hasn't really traveled a lot overseas or done um, adventure motorcycle travel overseas, flying in and taking a guided tour someplace where they don't have to worry about arranging equipment. They feel more comfortable that they've got support in case of any trouble with the bike for extraction or recovery. Um, There's some benefits to that, too. So I think there are ways that they fit. fit your needs and and fit your desire. I've not done a guided tour, but the rest of them I have. I've traveled with a group of women in South America in a few countries, uh, rode with a couple of friends through part of the uh, United States Continental Divide route, uh, traveled with my partner in the Americas, um, and done some traveling solo in the Americas as well. And, And I've enjoyed all of them, but there are pros and cons to each. Mm, yeah, I, I think you've got some ex- excellent points in there. And there's a difference between the group and the guided tour, uh, some fundamental differences, I think. The, the guided tour is something you'll sign on to, and you don't really, you don't have a say, really. You're, you're going to do what the guided tour is, which can be great uh, in one way because they take care of the of the of um, all your itinerary uh, as far as figuring out what you're doing from, from minute to minute. And it sort of, um, it, it relieves the stress from you of having to worry about that. But for other people, that might be stressful because you might want to do your own thing. So that's something you have to weigh up. But the difference between that guided tour, I think, and, and, the, and traveling with a group is the organizational part of it. The guided tour is structured. The group is generally not structured so much or at all. And what you often find with groups is they, they get fractured depending on the size of the group. And particularly as groups get larger, they tend to fracture and, and break into small clans where more like-minded people will ride together. And um, the, the, the disorganization, I think, of groups can sometimes be stressful, in particular if you've built your trip, or whether it's a day trip or a weekend or, or a year, whether you've built that on the, um, the basis of relying on your group. In other words, staying with your group. Like we did this, this Southward Chronicles series on Adventure Rider Radio, 
And Jeremy and Elle, who went out on this trip, they went together as a couple, but they were a new couple getting together. And they were prepared gear-wise and, and really in mindset as well to go their own ways if they had to. I'm wondering if that's a requirement for something other than the guided tour. Obviously, you're going to stick with that. But for the for any time you're riding with a, a person, uh, a buddy with you, I, I wonder if that's a requirement. When when um, Birgit and I finished the trip, she told me that when we started riding together, she was um, completely equipped and ready to ride away if things didn't work out. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you never knew this. No, I didn't. Is she still? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that, Michelle. I think about it. I think I'm one of the things about um, about um, traveling with other people is that you're always going to end up compromising, aren't you? And sometimes the compromises are things that you're quite comfortable doing. But the more people that are involved, the more compromises you risk ending up making. And the journey can be something where you have to basically just back off and say, okay, I'm just going to go with the flow. And I'll give up most of my dreams and ambitions just because well, I'm happy to see what goes, what, what happens. Um, but if you've got definite things that you want to do, then traveling in a group is a harder thing to do. I, I think with the group travel too, the big thing is knowing the group. If I've got a group of mates that I ride regularly with and I know how each one of them rides and I know how each one of them thinks, when they like a break, uh, what they like to see, what they like to do. And there's one particular guy I really enjoy riding with because we're very similar. But uh, and I really think that familiarity um, can be a good thing with a group. And sometimes you need to set those parameters. One thing you said, Sam, which I, I think a lot of people should take that advice, is when you get to a, a strange city, take a guided tour, a cheap tour around the city so, so that you know it. Now, we haven't even done a guided tour in our own city that we've lived in, which we really should do to get to know it even better. And uh, how about you, Sam? Have you taken a guided tour through London or...? Well, through London, I have several times. Um, and oh, there, there, you go. Are, there are open top buses that you can do there um, with a guide yeah. who, who natters away, and there are different routes that you can. But you've just made me realise that actually I've been living in Exeter for quite a few years now, and they do um, red coat walk around tours. And Birgit and I have been meaning to go on one of these, and we still haven't. Um, yeah, I'll take people and walk around tours on the city myself. I better do one of these red coat tours <laughs> so I find out what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went and stayed with friends in in um, in Germany, and she did do guided tours and took us to places, for example, where um, Anne Frank was taken from, and things like that that we didn't even know existed in that town. Brian, you mentioned about the guided tour that you guys just took, and and you said you wrote an article for it. Why did you choose to take a guided tour? I mean, obviously, you guys are fully capable of doing your own tours. It was uh, it was the idea sure, of a friend. Sure, it's interesting before we go for it. Sure, go now. <laughs> well, I was just going to doze off if I didn't get to sleep. <laughs> <that>. um, <laughs> no, we um, it was it came up an idea of a friend of ours, and it was one of those tours that we had a lot of say in what we did and what sort of roads we wanted to go on and how many k's we wanted to do in a day. It wasn't like we looked up a a website and went, "We'll take trip B." Um, so that was a huge advantage. They were a group of friends that we get on really well with and um, we all did our own thing prior to the trip and after the trip. Uh, we all just met in the one location to do the trip. And I've got to say one of the huge advantages of a guided tour is someone else takes the luggage. 
<laughs> so you get on the bike in the morning and you have your camera in your pocket and that's it. And when you stop at morning tea, there's a, a, a little car following behind you which has masses of cold water. Um, they take you somewhere for lunch so you don't have to worry about when you're going to get fed. And um, and just not having to worry about loading everything on the bike and making sure you've got you know, everything strapped on and it's just you, the two of us and the that were little bikes, but the two of us and the bike and a camera and that was it. That's all we had to deal with. Do you mean to say that little car gets all Brian's tools and everything in there, the tire changing tools? <laughs> well, because we weren't on our bike, Jim, the tire pliers sat at home in the in the garage and probably cried because they weren't going on a trip. <laughs> oh, I, I get it. So when you don't ride the BMW and you ride a scooter, you don't need tools. <laughs> Not when there's someone else's bike. Someone else's problem. There goes BMW sponsor. Uh, <laughs> Jim, I, I think Brian's just about to really give him a virtual smack. <laughs> <laughs> no, we also did one in um, in Vietnam, which was on uh, little little trail bikes up into really gnarly country across little bamboo bridges and all that sort of stuff. Two up, and uh, they did a great job. Um, so yes, there were there are definite advantages to that sort of thing. Um, but I, I think the, the big one that if you're going to travel with a group is to know your group, be prepared to um, be open, honest and frank with people about, oh, when well, I need a bit of space. As I alluded to when we went around Australia, one of our, our, our mates needed a bit of space, so he just went off and camped by himself and he said, I'll meet you tomorrow. And um, we all recognised that. So I think that's something you have to be really uh, cognizant of is group dynamics. Brian, you're making me um, go back to identify the purpose of your trip. That's one of the keys, isn't it? If you really know what you want out of your trip, when you're discussing um, going off on a trip with your mates and everybody knows what they want out of the trip, then you've got a chance of travelling well together as a group, haven't you? But how many people do we do we hear of who set off as, say, um, four or five mates, and within a few months they've split up because they just all had preconceived ideas that were about what the other people wanted? Yeah, I mean, we've had we, we've done pieces on the show here about uh, groups that have, that have headed off and, and it's splintered, and people have went off in their own ways because really what they focused on was the fact that they all knew each other and they were going to ride together. And maybe some, I think in, in the case that I'm thinking, they, they might have brought a buddy in that one of them knew or something, but thinking that they're going to ride together and that's that's enough. Uh, what do you guys think about doing shakedown trips? I think they're fantastic, uh, especially yeah, for yeah, identifying yeah. differences in riding skills, because that sometimes is a rub um, for groups when you're traveling together, depending on where you're going. If you are on terrain that some people aren't as experienced on or as comfortable with, it's better to do that on a short-term shakedown trip than it is to get out on a long, long haul trip and find that out when it's maybe a bit too late or causes more problems. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, that's a sound yeah, comment. Yeah. And like Brian's example, where he's saying that the one friend, you know, wanted to, to go off and camp by himself. That's a great thing to have the flexibility to do and plan that in advance and understand that, hey, there may be times where we're going to go and do different things and meet up somewhere. I mean, I like doing that. You know, if you're out and, and a couple of people head off one direction to do something and, and, you know, you go off to another direction and you end up meeting up. It, it's a, it just adds the excitement to me. Agreed. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, please. Anything else with deciding and, and um, trying to figure out? I mean, I guess we talked about the advantages and disadvantages of, of, of going solo. 
but I, I, one of the questions that, that would pop into your mind would be, should I go solo or should I be taking another person with me? I mean, are there, are there concerns there? Michelle, I think you mentioned about, you know, leaving your bike and that often comes up, you know, at a border crossing or something when you have to leave your bike and you have to go in and do your paperwork and things like that. It's a huge advantage to have a, a person there. So are there times where, where it's, um, it's advisable to, to go with a friend or not? Oh, I, I think so. Um, you know, that that's just one example. There are times that I ride, even in my area in the Black Hills, there are a lot of fire trails and uh, single tracks and different lanes that I ride on that I, I wonder about. If I'm out and about by myself and I haven't left word with someone of where I'm riding, and granted, these are only day rides, um, that I'm, I'm a little concerned about something happening mechanically or if I come off the bike and twist my ankle or something or I've broken a leg before, I guess it could happen again. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that it can. Um, so I carry a satellite device um, and I usually let people know where I'm going. But long distance travel, that's that's certainly a component of your thought process. I mean, I think there are ways to stay in touch. There are ways to look out for yourself um, and to to um, do everything you need to do solo. When I do border crossings, there have been a couple of times I've done them solo and I've been able to do that with, um, you know, equipment changes, kind of minding what I'm doing or I'm packing things, value, valuables, um, hard luggage versus soft luggage. So I can do that pretty efficiently on my own too. Uh, but it is something that is part of that decision-making process. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree, Michelle. And and, and I think um, when, when you've got a soulmate and you go to a border crossing, you each know what you're going to do. Um, uh, like uh, I'll either look after the bike or Shirley will go and, and do the visa stuff or vice versa or whatever we need to do. Um, one thing you know I've been sacked from is choosing motel rooms because my my level of comfort is not the same as Shirley's. I think, it, uh, so I think I just what you're sack. saying is your standards are too low. His standards are extraordinarily low, Extraordinarily low. Shirley, you you manage to do dry in your tone of voice sometimes just wonderfully. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, I got the sack very early in the piece, believe me. (laughs) You've always got company and if something goes wrong, you've always got someone to discuss with how you're going to get out of this predicament. And I think when, um, when you're riding solo, Michelle, it's different because you are solo, that you don't have an opinion to to discuss uh, ways out. And I think also at the end of the day, there's kind of nothing nicer than sitting down and saying, wasn't this part great? Or, boy, we really stuffed that up. We need to um, we need to fix that aspect of our travelling together. You know, just being able to discuss the day at uh, with someone at the end of the day is also a good thing. And, and I think, Michelle, you'd be very smart if you go on fire trails by yourself to have a GPS tracker of some description with emergency facility. Um, I could tell you some horrendous stories, which I won't recant here because this is a light program (laughs) about uh, those sort of things where they they can go terribly wrong. But, um, no, that's, that's, to me, that's just a given if you're doing that sort of stuff nowadays. It's cheap. It's cheap insurance and it it gives you that sense of – of um, reliability, I suppose. Yeah, that peace of mind, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, peace of mind. That's right. 
Well, um, we'll we'll move into um, to pre-trip planning. Um, I think, and um, pre-trip planning, Brian. W- what does that mean to you? <laughs> On our first trip, it meant everything uh, down to minute detail. Um, but um, nowadays, uh, I need a pair of jocks, I need a pair of socks, a shirt. Let's go. <laughs> no. Sure. Uh, I'm renowned for over planning our first trip. I get it. I, it's just something I have to wear. But um, you'd need to do a certain amount of, of planning, most you definitely. Do, you you do. Don't. I, was being, I was being frivolous. You do need to do some planning, but uh, getting that balance between over planning and uh, taking in too much information and not enough is a very delicate balance. But when you're talking about doing a trip where you're going to be crossing borders, yeah, it is foolhardy to get to the border and go, what do I need? Yeah. You need to you need to look at the borders you're going to cross because some visas you're going to have to get in your own country, other visas you're going to have to get only with, you can only get them within 30 days of your arrival in the country. So you, you need to have those sort of logistical things sorted out before you go or you could find yourself sitting in a country without a passport because you've had to send your passport home to your home country to get a visa stamped into Or the classic, the classic one. The, the faux pas that was made by Charlie and Ewan on their first trip. You might remember this. They um, got to their first border crossing and didn't have their original registration certificate, which, is, which you need. If you read anything on Horizons Unlimited, it's all about you must have original documents, not photocopies. Mm-hmm. So they, they had a, an army of people supporting them back back in their home office with maps on the wall and all the rest of it, and they forgot one of the most fundamental things. So you need to have some sort of planning and understanding of, one, where you're going, what you need, and uh, that's probably enough, really. Not about what you need to pack on the bike as far as clothes can go. You can almost buy on the road, but those um, documentation and, and bureaucratic things that you have to deal with on the road. Wow, that's I, okay. I want to come back to this. We're not you're, you just said not not necessarily what you're packing on the bike because you can get that on the road. But first, I want to bring Grant Johnson in because Grant has arrived. Grant, can you hear us? Hello, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, you're hey, just Grant. fine. How's everybody? Hey, doing? mate. Been having fun without me. Good. We've missed you terribly. <laughs> We've missed you. Oh, well, it's nice. wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. I always enjoy this. So, Grant, you know what we're doing here. Of, of course, we've got as far as um, pre-trip planning. We we just started to talk about pre-trip planning, and and um, you heard what Brian had said there. And, and I sort of wanted to go back to Brian, and, and Grant, I want to get you in here on this because Brian said he's concerned more about the other things and not what you're packing on your bike. And it's that's an interesting statement because I think what you pack on your bike seems to be big on everyone's list. I mean, how many times have we seen photographs where everybody shows this is what I pack? And, and this is how you pack, and they give the instructions of packing your bike. So, Brian, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, it's a thing that morphs on the road. Just pack, pack what I pack for three days, I will pack for a month on a bike. You know, as far as clothes and things like that go, you wet weather gear, a, ch- a change of uh, clothes so that you can go walking on the street, um, and uh, your, your, your essentials. And you, you, wet bag, what else do you need as far nine, as yourself goes? Nine pairs of socks, Brian. If you've got a foot fetish, it's very important. Nine pairs of socks. That's like 27 days worth of socks. 
Oh, <laughs> maybe in your world, Jim. Oh. Oh. The mate I travelled around Australia with, yeah, the, he, he took two pairs of uh, underwear and he'd wash it out overnight and hang it off the back of his bike and we'd be riding along and his <laughs> underwear's flapping in the breeze off the back of his bike, tied on by an hockey strap. Another advantage of solo travel. (laughs) (laughs) There's a big difference whether you're traveling solo or with two of you, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, Grant, you've just given me this image of your underpants and Susan's underpants flapping on the back of the bike. I mean, let's let's change the subject here. Well, it wouldn't be so bad if if you bought those ones with the flags on them, you know, so it was made into a flag. Of your country. <laughs> Good idea. Dual purpose. Exactly. This is Isn't a whole that what we topic, Jim. Where I have seen. Yeah, there's always this. Um, talking about this particular thing always reminds me, and this is just a funny story that's slightly off offline. But um, I was traveling through South America with um, another guy, Max, and we were coming coming to this nasty river crossing, and it was a few difficult spots. So he took his helmet off and tied it on the back of his bike. First bump. It went flip and down behind <laughs> the wheel as he goes through the river. So his helmet was now full of water. <laughs> and it was, the, the water was mud and probably uh. off from a farm up the river. Oh, it was the most disgusting thing. <laughs> he, he washed it and washed it and washed it. And just still, every time he put it on, he was just about threw up. <laughs> so don't <Yeah>. do that. <laughs> So, so pre-trip planning, Grant, what, what does that say to you? Uh, I think like Brian said, people tend to over-plan their stuff. You can buy stuff on the road. It doesn't have to be perfect. It will change. And trying for perfection is the enemy of good enough. And good enough means, yes, I think I can survive for the next few days. And after that, you'll figure it out. You'll decide what you don't need. And everybody takes too much. Uh, I mean, I've gone done lots of traveling and it seems like every trip i take i always take stuff there's a couple of things in there that i thought would be a really good idea to have and then i never touched it in the entire trip why did i bring it well because it seemed like a good idea Hmm. or somebody said you should have one of these or it was on the shelf in the shop and and was looked really cool yeah i should have that that's that's not a good idea not necessarily you you just don't need that much stuff Keep it simple. You can always buy it. It's always available. There's people there. You can buy toothpaste anywhere in the world. It's not that hard. Um, So keep it simple for what you're taking. And then the rest of it, yeah, um, you need to know about borders. But you don't need to know that much. You need to know the basics. What visas do you need? And contrary to what uh, Shirley said a little bit earlier, you know, you can't just rock up to border and not have a clue. At worst... They'll say, you need to go back to the capital city to get, a, to get a visa, or you can't get a visa at all unless you're in your home country. Then you go, oh, darn, I guess I'll have to take a different route, which for some people is, well, that's okay. I didn't want to do any planning. It's easier, and I'll figure it out as I go. And for others, the trip is over. It's a disaster. It's the world's worst thing that could possibly happen. So, and part of that will be governed by how much time you have. I mean, if you if you don't have, if you have a time limit, then you're going to have to do more planning than someone who's open-ended. Absolutely. And the, the, sure, the sure. ideal, of course, as we all know, is to be open-ended, to be able to go when and where the latest whim uh, should take you to. 
But if you're trying to do something on a very specific time, I've got three months, I want to do all of these countries. Yep, you better do your planning and have it all figured out in advance or you're going to be in trouble. And, and it's not that hard anymore to find out what the visa requirements are. I mean, you go onto Horizons and, and search on a country and visa and yep, the information will be there. Contrary to when Susan and I headed off in 87, we sent out over 100 letters, paper letters, to all the embassies in Canada and the U.S. that we could access for the countries we were wanting to go to, asking what, do, what are the requirements to get in, what do we need for a visa, et cetera, et cetera. We got zero responses. Wow. Nobody yeah, I had, cared. I had the same thing, Grant. Yeah. I ended up actually having to go to embassies to, to find, and make an appointment to see somebody to find out the information. Yeah, and you're in England where embassies aren't very far away. I'm in Vancouver, mm-hmm. BC, Canada, and the nearest embassy is Ottawa, 5,000 mm-hmm. miles away. That's a good a excuse for a ride, hey? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so you can figure it out. As a general rule, for most countries, and I won't say for all because certainly Russia is not included in this, but most countries, you rock up to the border and, yeah, what do I need to do? And they'll do it for you on the spot. Certainly all of North America, South America, Central America, not a problem. Just arrive. You don't need to plan anything. But you do but need... But there's um, the Middle East, if you're going to the Middle East, if you're going into Pakistan, Iran, yeah, you know, exactly. some of maybe totally more good. exotic countries, Grant. I just, yes. you know, I just mm-hmm. think to say to people, just get on your bike and ride can be... Um, you know, you could be you could be sending them into a, a situation that they're really going to have trouble to get out of. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to make it aware that there are areas, countries, parts of the world where it's not a problem, and there are areas, certainly Middle East, the Stands, Russia. Um, that's actually pretty much it where it's really a problem that I can think of. Africa, there's no problem just rocking up to the border anywhere um, at the moment. At the moment, yes. And these things can yeah. all change. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. Um, when we landed from uh, South Africa into Buenos Aires, Argentina, and this was 97, yeah, 97, and they said, we don't know how to, how to deal with you. And they said, we, we've got a carne. And they said, we don't know how to deal with a carne. The guy that knows how to deal with carnes left the job. He's no longer here. So we don't know how to do, with, do anything with the carne. We ended up teaching them how to use a carne and what it was all about and what it was for. Wow. So you never know what you're going to do. We just find. get them to stamp it. Yeah. They had to agree and accept that it was okay to stamp this and they were getting themselves into trouble. Yeah. yeah. So again, yeah. I had several border crossings where we were teaching the, the guys how to use the carne. And that was their biggest fear that they would be rubber stamping or signing something that would come back and bite them. Yes. He's going into a country afraid. like Colombia, going in from Ecuador into Colombia. Um, the computer, I mean, this was early days for computers, but the computer system was down. The only way they knew how to process uh, carnets was using the computer. So Birgit and um, our Belgian friend Marlena, who, both, who spoke, both spoke Spanish really well, ended up showing um, the ladies in the customs office how to do the paperwork by hand. And they were digging out these dusty old um you know, A4 notepads with all the different boxes that needed to be filled in. Um, but that's part yeah. of the fun of travel, isn't it? Sure. And I think that this is sure. one of the things where if you've done your plea trip um, planning and you know what you're likely to need as you're going into the countries, um, if, if you've got that information in your mind and you get the unexpected at the border, then you're that much more able 
uh, to deal with the unknown. A favourite saying of mine um, is, um, dreams are where adventures begin. And the pre-trip planning stage for me is where those dreams start to come to life because I'm, I'm actually collecting the information that is making the dreams into reality. Yeah, I like that. Before, yeah. before, we, get off, before we get off that topic, our, our big problem was getting from Mexico into the United States of America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because, yeah. We had all the paperwork and we'd done all everything that they'd wanted on their computer and we came out to the bike and the guy who was processing putting the bike through um, could not enter our registration details into their computer system because, one, it was from Australia and, two, it was a personalised plate. <laughs> so he had no idea. So he just said, get on he said, and ride. He said, he said, you just get on and go. You'll be right. So, we did. so our bike has never been into America, but it has left America. So, <laughs> go about that. You have a vanity plate. What does your plate say? Uh, our, our, um, our personalised plate is uh, TRVL2, Travel 2. Travel 2 where? Travel 2 because it's the second travel bike we've had. So um, TRVL2. And two of you travelling together. Yep. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Nice one. I like that. It beats the hell out of Brian and Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's something you fear very much in this country, and that's people who travel in caravans who have their names and the radio uh, frequency channel. that they um, contact each other on. So if you see Bev and Bob, Channel 32, Avoid them like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about Just that, Bev. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, how about you? Pre-trip planning, what, what kind of pre-trip planning do you do? Um, well, mine's a bit different, obviously. I, I wonder about visas and take a look at that and border crossings and some of the routes uh, that I want to go. But one of the things that I really like to take a look at is what's going on in the country. And that's probably from my tourism background. So I take a look at a calendar and see what's going on that's maybe a special event that I don't want to miss. Maybe there's an annual festival. Um Maybe there's a, uh, a town or a village that has something that is a must-see. Again, I usually check off UNESCO World Heritage Sites um, and, and kind of see what, what is going on seasonally in a country as I'm planning and see if I can plot my route to pick up some of those fun, unique events that uh, I wouldn't see otherwise. Love it. I really like the idea of that, Michelle. And the other side that comes in with that is looking for things like, is there an election going on in a country? <laughs> because there are some yes. countries that you just, just don't, don't want to be at an election time. Yeah, no, I thought that's what you were going to say, Michelle. I thought you were going to talk about political things, because I think that's also a concern, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember traveling through Peru and actually I think Bolivia, Peru, even into uh, uh, Ecuador, a number of countries had elections going on when we were there and we ran into roadblock after roadblock and protest and, you know, signs painted everywhere. So it felt just like home. There was constant roadblocks, but we found that generally, oh, foreigners, okay, you can go through and yes. they would hold up all the locals. Although yes. we didn't get stopped at one for four hours before they decided to let anybody through. But we were the first ones through and they just said, yeah, yeah go ahead. No worries. We said, good luck. Yeah, yeah, I found the same. Yeah. 
Well, I think Sam, that we, we, we've got caught up with one too in, um, is it Africa, Shirley? Yeah, where demonstration for demonstration fair wages. And, uh, you know, you see a line of traffic and uh, people wave you to the front. So we get up to the front and go past this bus. And next thing, we're surrounded by people waving clubs and all sorts of things. And and uh, the road's blocked for, by a demonstration. And it was the women in the group who let us um, uh, stop the um the aggra- aggravation from the men and uh, said, no, they're just travellers, let them go, let them go. And the police were more than a little surprised when we appeared out of the demonstration and went on our merry way. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Sam, when you're, you're looking at um, political things in, in countries you're headed to, does that change your route? Would you go around something like that, avoid it, or you just want to be aware that it's going on? It's a combination of both. A lot depends on what the situation is like historically in a country, for example, at election times. And Birgit and I rode into El Salvador not knowing that there was an election happening. And within half an hour of us crossing the border, the air had become incredibly tense. And there were black windowed four by fours with men hanging off the side with machine guns and wraparound shades and all of this sort of stuff blasting around. And it was just a really, really uncomfortable atmosphere. And we had the feeling all of the time that we were there that it was only going to take one thing to spark it and then there would be shooting. And it just was not a sensible place to be. So we would never go back to El Salvador, for example, at election time. But we've been in other countries when there's been elections going on. And actually, Actually, it's been really interesting to watch what's been going on, how a country has dealt with um, its election situations. Some places have just been enthusiastically calm, if you're with me. It's a weird combination. Um, But yeah, so a lot depends on how the country historically handles its election situation. Some places are just that much more volatile. I'm just going to throw in a little tip. It's kind of... Uh, in, in the worst case, and I've only heard of this happening a couple of times, um, you get stopped in one of these demonstrations or even police stop you and they rip your key out of your bike. Now what do you do? You can't go anywhere. You can't get away. You're stuck. So the tip is to make sure you have a spare key. Either your passenger has the spare key or a spare key or you have one and stuck away in a jacket somewhere where you can get at it quickly and just pay attention, keep an eye on things, and at some point, stick your key in and drive away. Mm, If you try not to do these things or get into these situations, but being stuck without your key, you can't go until that person decides you can go, it might make you a little nervous. Mm -hmm. So having that spare key is a good thing. Sound bit of advice anyway. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you might just... I always travel with keys. Yeah. Yeah. I always have a set of keys. A spare set of keys, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Susan yeah. has our spare set of keys for the bike complete in her jacket pocket. It's available, accessible at any time right away. I did a Facebook post on um, tents um, earlier on today and um, I, I phrased it. What do I look for um, in a travel tent? And the first bright spark responded instantly with my keys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the worst is well, when you pack it up and then you realize. No, I was just going to say, have any of you not ever done that? No, packed your tent up and everything else, left your keys. I've taken putting my keys in my boot and when I, we pull up something because a number of times, where the hell are my keys? And you're going, leaving a room or something like that. So when I get into the room, I take my boots off. The first thing I do is put my boots 
on the floor and put the keys in it. And can I just share a little story with you that happened only three or four days ago. We had gone to a country town nearby and Brian was getting ready to get on the bike and put his foot in his boot and pulled his foot out and then tipped his boot upside down and got his keys out. (laughs) There you go. Just saying. Thanks, Cheryl. (laughs) (laughs) The, The one thing that I don't think has been mentioned that we haven't talked about here is weather and seasons. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's there's a lot of people that have done some amazing spreadsheets figuring out what the weather is in the right in various countries, and ended up reversing the direction of their trip because the weather just yeah, worked a lot better that way. That's what we did. Yeah, that's us. That's no, us. We did. We've done that. Why why ride in a monsoon if you can ride in the sunshine? Amen. Why ride yes. across the Sahara in the middle of the summer if you can ride in the spring? Hey, June in the Sahara is if wonderful. You want to do <laughs> not. <laughs> if you want to do Ushuaia to Alaska, you either do it in eight months or 20. <laughs> so you're in both <laughs> extremes in the it. summer. Yeah. And when yeah. we did our first trip, we were going to ride from Australia to England. And to get there for the Isle of Man, we would have driven through um, terrible weather the whole way. So we turned the trip around and shipped the bike to England and rode home. So we came home in good weather. Yeah. Nice one. Well, uh, moving on from from uh, pre-trip planning, when you're going on anything, you, you've got to get your life in order. You've got to get certain things done. Now, depending on how long you're going, because if you're going on a long trip, obviously, this is a lot bigger deal than, you know, going away for a weekend or a few weeks or a month or, or something where you might just lock your house or your apartment and head off on your adventure and then come back to that same thing. If you're going for a, a long time, you may be renting your house out, maybe selling it or, or whatever the case is. So you can understand there's a, there's a lot in there. But um, there's also, and I think that's the obvious stuff. I think, you, you know, you'll, you'll figure that out immediately as you start to think about what's going to happen to my stuff when I go. But there's some other things that we've talked about here and there um, when it comes to um, contacts, when it comes to figuring out um, vehicle repairs, your bike repairs, um, if you have a contact for parts and, and paperwork and insurance. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit to begin with. One of the things I would say that's most important is to make sure that there's somebody at home that has power of attorney or whatever it's called in your country to basically sign and do something with your bank accounts, with whatever, just in case something happens. I mean, you could be in a major accident, unconscious, and need to be taken care of in some way. Um, Somebody with power of attorney can take care of that kind of thing and make sure that your money is dealt with and you're shipped home or whatever it takes. But somebody has to have that authority. You can't just take off and assume that everybody would be able to work it out if something goes really badly wrong. So oh, it's a lot I couldn't of stuff agree more home. with you, Grant. And and just somebody who's going to look after any oddball mail that turns up unexpectedly yeah. or um, you need paperwork organizing that you can't organize from the road. Somebody who knows exactly what's going on with you and has copies of your passport and your driving license and all the other things. It's My mother was that for me on the eight-year trip. Fantastic. Um, and it would have been an awful lot more difficult to be arranging things um, without her being at base camp, as she called herself. Yeah, very good. Yeah, my mother was the same for us. And it just made so, life so much easier. We used to make a phone call and need, need to sort this out and it's done. And you know, but she really enjoyed it because, uh, as your mum probably did as well, because yep. they were involved, they were being useful, they understood what went on and they knew that they were doing their thing to keep you safe while you were out there which is very important to mothers. Mm-hmm. Moms are the best. Yes, no they are. 
And so are best friends, which is what happened in my case. I had a best friend who uh, filled that role for me. She uh, was added to my bank account. I had a power of attorney and a will that she kept for me. Um, And then I forwarded all of my mail to her. So she really held down the fort for me as well. I had things that she had to send while I was out. I actually was out long enough that a couple of my uh, bank cards expired when I was on the road. So I had to make arrangements to have a bank card sent to me in a foreign country as well as um, updated registration for my bike. So there are things that, especially when you're gone for an extended period of time, that you don't really think of in the short term or you're thinking of, you know, in terms of maybe a year from now, but if you're looking at an extended trip that you really need to consider like those. Yeah. So you might've even missed something there. Is that what you're saying? You missed your bank card expiry date. And then all of a sudden, if someone wasn't there to help you with it, that could create a real big problem. That's exactly right. So she was able, by holding down the fort, so to speak, to uh, help me with those and get those shipped to me down in South America and keep me traveling. Nice. Yeah, that helps. Um, I just want to tell a little story about my experience with registration of the bike. Um, In Canada, my bike was registered in Alberta for tax reasons because there was no sales tax in Alberta. So that was saved a lot of money on the sales tax of the bike. Um, But my sister was living in Alberta at the time. And when the time came time to renew the registration, somebody has to, in those days, somebody had to go into the motor, motor vehicle branch and actually do the paperwork. So she walks in and hands him the paper and um, you're doing this for who? My brother. Okay, no problem. And where's the bike? Um, I think we were in, I I can't even remember where we were, but we were somewhere in Africa. And she said, Africa, oh, the bike's not here. No, the bike's in Africa. He's on a round-the-world trip. Oh, well, if the bike's not here, we can't renew the registration. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so, oh, I know. We're sorry. We were in Gibraltar. We were about to go to Africa. That's right. We were in Gibraltar. So, we were stuck. Like, there was nothing we could do. I actually, stupidly, flew to Canada, went to Alberta, and said, what do I have to do to renew the registration? And they said, where's the bike? It's in Gibraltar. Oh, we can't renew the registration without the bike being here. And that was the end of it. And I went to the head of the ministry to get that result. Nothing, nobody would have anything to do with it. Said, nope, it's not here. Forget it. Can't do it. So I flew back to Gibraltar and we happened to run into a Canadian who was running a little newspaper there. And he said, I've got a Mac. This is 97. I've got a Mac and I've got PageMaker, I think it was, or something. Give me your old registration. Scanned it in. A couple little changes. Good to go for two years. <laughs> page maker is yeah. kind of like like Photoshop, I guess, in a way. But page maker was yeah, the kind of laying out pages yeah, same and idea. stuff. Yeah, basically, you, so, you forged a document. You for, we forged a document. I mean, we, we went to the the length. The Canadian registration document uh, actually is two parts, but it's all one piece of paper with a serrated thing in between, so you can tear it apart. So we thought, you know, <clears throat> just in case another Canadian goes through the African border just ahead of us and they know what it's supposed to look like. I'm going to make a serration down the middle of this so that it looks really legitimate. A piece of sheet metal and started filing little notches, turned it over, bang, and I've got perfect serrations across the document, just like the original. I 
Grant, I yeah. thought you were such a nice man. <laughs> I am. I'm very nice. <laughs> I was just thinking. But when just... bureaucracy gets in the way and is stupid, I'll do yeah, what that, it takes. I mean, that, that was just ridiculous. <laughs> this is this is a side of Grant that few know. It was very ingenious. Very ingenious. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be telling this story, but it's over seven years since, so they can't get me. <laughs> but I think the, the important lesson that we learned I'll there. Get the statute of limitations for you, mate. I'll check out the statute of limitations, okay? See if you, you still get <laughs> Okay, you do that. Um, you're a cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, today, most of the places will allow you to do re registration or your annual registration online. So be sure to check very carefully what is the requirements in your place where you live on renewing the registration, insurance, whatever, MOT, if you've got such a thing, um, to make sure you know what you have to do and how you deal with it when you're out of the country. But right. plan that well in advance on in advance and get that done right. Getting back to, getting back to um, Jim's point of uh, getting your life in order, my advice is get a blank piece of paper. And project manage it. If anyone's ever done any project management courses or um, anything like that, you'd be down what you need to do. You know, registration, insurance, carne, uh, um, house insurance, whatever it might be, and then you do it like via timeline as to what's important. And um, that's the best way to do it, I think, is to just list it all down and then work out the timelines. Oh, that's due on such and such a date. Get do it spreadsheet if you want to. Uh, if you that computer literate, but a piece of blank piece of paper will do just fine. Or the other option is to get your wife to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know who did it? <laughs> do you know yes, one of the Grace. things that a lot of people don't do um, when they're setting off on a big trip. And I think this stands in really good stead is while they're at home and they're still fresh and they're still business minded and, and so on, is to sit down and completely refresh their CV. So when they come back, that document is just ready there waiting so that they can come back and, and get running straight away with the job hunt and all of those sorts of things. Um, I put doing that on the same level as um making sure that you've got your dates and your insurances and so on. Because when you come back, you're going to be battling with an awful lot of things and having to sit and do something as drudgy as a CV. Um, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you need to add sure. something. What's he talking CV? about, John? I don't know. What's work? What, what, what's work? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I must say that when I get back my from the big trip, my CV did absolutely no good at all because um, I've never worked since. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I blooming wish. Oh, dear. Instant image of me swinging in a, in a hammock under, under a blue sky on a white sand beach. There. That well, for those of you that don't know, I can, I can vouch for Sam's idea because I did have to come back and go to work. And that's a brilliant idea. It really is because I'd forgotten where I had worked and when, what the dates were, contact information for references. So that's a very smart piece of advice, Sam. Mm. Thank you, Michelle. All the other guys laughing at me. That'll teach me. Sorry, what, what's, the most, what's the piece of information you have to add? That you have successfully completed a major trip negotiated yes. countless borders, dealt with bureaucracy, and succeeded in completing something that most people aren't capable or are afraid of doing, and you have succeeded at it, and you are a person who can deal with problems and solve them. That's so hugely sure you, valuable for a new company. 
So add that trip to your to your CV is what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Don't yeah. try and hide it. I mean, when we hit it off, the idea was that you would hide those kinds of things um, because <laughs> you're obviously a flake and you're you're a, you have no use and you're not going to be here for the next thirty uh, years. Like we want you to be. Unreliable dropout. Absolutely. But today, it's a very different thing. Having that international experience, dealing with problems and solving them is, is a big plus. Employers love that. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But you've got to get the language right. It's international relations expert, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Japan and bummed around for three months. Doesn't quite cut it, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> I know a number of people who have come back from a big trip and people said, oh, you'll never get a job again, et cetera. And everybody I know of has gotten a better job at higher pay because they've had that international experience. So they highlighted that and said, this is a good thing. And the right, the right employer agrees. Seriously, seriously one of the things um, people look for now is emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence depends on your experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I want to take a, a just a, a quick break before we get into the, the next piece, we're, but stay with us because we're going to talk about choosing a bike. We're going to tell you which bike you should be riding. But first, I want to talk about freshtracks.co.uk. That is the sponsor of this episode. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s. And um, what they do is they work with companies to inspire, uh, motivate, challenge, build communication skills, um, companies and groups um, through team building exercises. Now, they most recently have been working on getting the most out of these COVID times because, I mean, I mean, hey, I think all of our lives have been changed in different ways with COVID, people having being forced to stay at home and, and work from home. And, and companies are sort of grappling with this, trying to figure out ways to deal with it, you know, ways to deal with your employees and whatnot. Uh, I know my son is, is working from home and it's a, it's a whole different dynamic from going to work and he's working in the, in the gaming industry. And there's a lot of, um, well, it's just all new, you know, trying to work from home and trying to keep those, the social dynamics and trying to keep the, the company enthusiasm and connection, all those sorts of things. Well, Fresh Tracks has come up with a program for that now. So if you're, you are running a company or have anything to do with organizing people in your company, then you might want to have a look at what Fresh Tracks offers, freshtracks.co.uk. For us motorcyclists, I'm going to give you a website. It's freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. Now, what this is, they have an area on their main campus where you can go and try out your gear. You can camp there. You can explore the area that they have. Also, there's a bunch of green lanes around the area. Sam, have you been to uh, to Fresh Tracks area? Lockdown. Ah, so you haven't been there yet. But no. you know the area that he is because they're, they're located just outside of London. It's, uh, it's a beautiful area and um, the countryside's just absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, um, some, some great trails around there. Um, I'm itching for all of this hoo-ha to be over and done with so that I can get up there and, um, and uh, for sure um, try everything out. Yeah, they've got um, they've got some little buildings there. I mean, you can camp there as well, but they've got little buildings that you can rent out. And, then, of course, they've got a big facility as well. Like uh, it's, it's on Airbnb. Anyway, check it out, and, and anytime you're dealing with them, uh, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It's freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. We thank them very much for being a part of this, and they do it because they're motorcycle enthusiasts, and they listen to the show. So thank you very much, Fresh Tracks. Too right. Now let's, uh, now we talk about choosing a bike and, and what is the perfect bike. 
and I think from obviously from what I just said, we we have a, a different uh, perfect bikes. But but what is the perfect bike? Where, where do we go from here? Who's going to jump in on this? I'm thinking about three wheels. It might help me not to fall off so much. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be two in front and one in back, or the other way around? No, I'm completely jesting. I I kind of like the world from horizontal position. <laughs> Time to relax, isn't it? Take a break. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're there. You're you're going to you're thinking about taking a trip, and this is a this is another common question that comes up: What bike is the right bike? And then, of course, when we get to the right bike, they want to break it down into what all the mods that you should do for your bike. We have all seen and talked to people who have done trips on all manner of motorcycles, from Harley Davidsons to scooters. And everybody seems to make it. Grant? Yeah, I think that's the big thing. There's, you know, thousands of people have gone around the world or done big trips, whatever. And any bike will make it because you can get it fixed just about anywhere. And worst comes to worst, you can throw it away and get another one. The trick is not to get carried away with perfection again. Whatever bike you've got, if you love it, you think it's wonderful, then that's the bike to take. You don't need to change. It doesn't have to be an adventure bike. It's not necessary to be a fancy dual sport. It doesn't have to be a 1200 GSA. Whatever you got will go around the world. There are roads out there. You know, they're varying quality. I know a guy, for instance, who went around the world on a one of the new Honda Goldwing six cylinders. I mean, this is a big, heavy motorcycle. And they really don't much like the dirt. And in fact, he said, when asked about riding in the dirt, he says, dirt? I wiped that off my bike very carefully. I love it. So he, you, the, the trip is going to be what you make of it. And the roads you ride are going to be dependent somewhat on what you have, what kind of bike you're riding. Uh, having said that, people have got across the Sahara on sport bikes. Jacques Lucasen went around the world twice on a CBR 900RR and an R1. And he went through the worst parts of Africa, and there's video of him going through a river and being helped by a couple of people and picking the front end of the bike up and water pouring out of the pipes and all the rest of it. You can do it on anything. Just make sure that, first of all, you like the bike. If you don't love the bike, you won't excuse its errors. Um, People sometimes buy a bike based on what somebody else said they should have, but they really don't like it, but it's the right bike. So they take it and they don't like it. They don't like it. And then something goes wrong and then they hate it. And then they really hate it. You don't want to get into that situation. If you love the bike and something goes wrong, that's okay. We'll just fix it. And you deal your with bi- it. And you your bike's going to be your best friend, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be. If you don't love it, don't take it. But part of the practical, I mean, often, you know, and often we say, you know, take whatever bike you love. And the other thing is the the examples you gave are Jacques Lucasen. These are anomalies. And yes, they show that you can do these things, but is it practical or is it advisable for the for the average person? And we're talking here for newbies. So for newbies, um, my thought process is, and this was already alluded to as well, your route is is going to affect 
what bike is probably most suited. I don't want to say the best, most suited. And your idea of your trip, as we back up here in our trip planning and, and, and look at the things that we've talked about, identifying the purpose of your trip. If the purpose of your trip is to find incredible trails, well, don't take a Harley Davidson, obviously. And I think that's that's very obvious. So Unless your name's Peter and Kay Forward. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. again, there's always going to be anomalies for sure. Yeah, um, there is. Yeah, I mean, there, there's all kinds of those. But um, so you have to be you have to be practical. But there are some other considerations that I, I was thinking about. Like, what about expensive versus cheap? How does that play into how can, what bike you choose? Can I just bring one in that I think actually should go at the top of the what bike should I go on list? Mm-hmm. Leg length. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to fit the bike. You've got to be able to get your feet on the ground. You've got to be comfortable. And yes, there are very skilled riders who can set off um, and run the bike and then jump on while it's going and all of that sort of stuff. But if you're going to be going on a round-the-world journey, then you want to be able to put your feet down comfortably. So I think the most important thing is choosing the leg length. And then going back to what you were just saying, Jim, I think as far as the cost of the bike is concerned, it's working out whether you're going to go into um, a Carnet de Passage country or not because a lot large percentage of the cost of the Carnet de Passage is down on the value of the bike. And of course, it's how much money you've got. How much money do you want to invest in a motorcycle versus how much of that money do you want to invest in covering miles and visiting countries? Yeah. And when it comes down to the cost of the bike, you have to decide, as you alluded to, Sam, what's your budget? Can you afford to throw this bike away and walk away? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay, if I bought 1200 GSA and went around the world on it tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to afford to throw it away. I would not be very happy with that at all. And most of us won't. So something cheaper is is a good thing. Uh, even a five-year-old, six-year-old, my current one is 13 years old. And yeah, I still wouldn't want to throw it away, but I'd feel a lot better than that about a brand new one. So, And I know a guy who went around the world with a budget of $500 per motorcycle which means that when he got to a country where they didn't want to bring the bike in or he had to have a carnet, he'd sell it locally for peanuts and take the bus across and buy another one for 500 bucks. He went through about six or eight bikes. Fine. That's cheap when you think about it. Well, I don't know where you'd find a bike in Canada for $500. (laughs) You might be surprised what you can find if you try hard enough. (laughs) I agree. I was offered $1,500 trading for mine. For my GSA, they How much? fifteen hundred dollar trade. Fifteen hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I agree with what Sam said about um, being able to put your feet on the ground. But think about this: you're going to be fully loaded too. So if you go try a bike out and you, you're not comfortable with uh, your feet on the ground or things like that, when it's fully loaded, um, maybe it's not the bike for you. Um, thinking of newbies, as uh, Jim said, I, I really think that comfort is the big thing. Comfort for you, and that includes being able to put your feet on the ground, um, a riding position, but you can always change that a little. Um, and cost of parts, cost of getting parts, um, availability of parts. For example, does it take a, a belt drive? How hard is it to find a belt if that goes? Um, shaft drive bikes are really good, but you've got to maintain them and look after them. Um, chains are pretty easy to get. Chains and sprockets you can get anywhere. So um, it's horses for courses in a lot of ways. Um, but 
as far as bikes go, I think, um, as Grant said, what is what suits you and what you're comfortable with, it will do it. Most modern bikes would could travel around the world tomorrow. And when I say modern, anything 10 years, 20 years old would get, you could just pick it up, change the oil and ride it around the world tomorrow if you wanted to. Michelle? Yeah, I just say here, here to that. Yeah, I think those are all really great points. And I, I, I think I can relate mostly to what Grant was saying about choosing a bike partly based on cost. When I was headed for South America, I literally chose a KLR because of exactly that. That's terrible. But I felt like, ah, I could walk away from that. No problem. <laughs> yep. Um, There's many KLR our owners out there that'll just be tearing their hair out now when you say that. How could you not, walk away from a KLR? <laughs> and I, I'm being uh, facetious or, you know, making light of it. But no question, budget-wise, if I were riding a more expensive bike, I would have felt differently about it. And if I were put in a situation where I had to choose, if I were, you know, as my worst case scenario mind had, had worked up in my imagination before I left, if I were held at gunpoint someplace or being robbed, would I fight harder for a 15 or $20,000 motorcycle than I would for what I paid for the KLR? Mm -hmm. And I might, I might have. So I really felt like, all right, it won't break the bank. It won't break me if I have to walk away from a situation or if I have a medical issue and I have to fly home and leave the bike and something happens to it. I'm not going to worry about it as much if I don't have that much money invested in it. So from that standpoint, the KLR was, was why I chose it. And, um, you know, I've heard the saying, uh, a jack of all trades, master of none. And that is definitely a KLR from my standpoint. I love my KLR. I still do, still have her, flew her home from or from uh, Buenos Aires after the trip. So clearly it's a bike that I'm, I'm very happy with. Um, there were a lot of other benefits for me with that. There were certainly some downsides to having the KLR um, as opposed to other bikes, but that's true of anything because when you're riding a couple of continents, there are so many different factors into that. You just try and, and find a bike that's going to do the best it can with covering all of those factors. I was riding a lot at altitude where I w maybe would have preferred a fuel injected bike uh, because I was tinkering with carburetor to try and adjust for different altitudes. Um, so there, you know, there were some cons to that, but um, the KLR was a great fit for that trip. It was a bike that I chose that I knew I could get parts for all over Central and South America. So it was easy for that. Uh, when I did the Continental Divide ride here in the States, I wanted something that I knew I could pick up on my own and the KLR fully loaded, I, I struggled with. I could pick it up if I fell just the right way. If, if I had fallen anything other than flat, like if there was a camber and embankment and the bike was more up upside down. There was no way I was going to lift that by myself. Um, so I, I chose a Yamaha XT250 and that lighter, smaller bike was perfect for me for anything that I was going to do on the Continental Divide ride. So yeah, it just depends on, on a lot of factors, but you're exactly right. It's whatever you're comfortable with um, and it's what makes you happy and you're going to be with it. It's going to be your partner. So you need to make sure that it's, it's the right fit. And that's where some of those shakedown ride opportunities can really uh, make sure that that's the right bike for you. 
And, and that last thing, so, last last point that you made there, sort of lends itself to what I want to say about Brian as well, because Brian talked about um, talked about being loaded, and and some people may not want want that bike, and I don't want to address that. But the other thing he said there was any bike would be able to ride around the world right now, and, and I think that's great, that's true, but it doesn't mean that anyone can ride any bike. Like I kind of think for for a newbie, they should be looking more at the purpose of their adventure. Like you said, Michelle, there you, you, you have your KLR, you love your KLR, you're used to it, but it's a little too heavy for what you were going to do. So you opted for a different bike that suited your purpose better. And I, I think that's so important. And in that thought process is also the consideration of how you are going to load your bike. Are you riding it solo? Are you riding it two up? And what is the maximum gross vehicle weight of this motorcycle. I mean, motorcycles as a whole don't don't hold much weight. They don't have much weight carrying capacity. And I think it's really important to understand that rather than just say, you know, well, any bike will do it. Well, that's true, but it doesn't mean that anyone can do it with that bike. Yeah, right. I agree with that. The, yeah. um, there's one other thing that I would throw into the mix and that's reputation. Um perfect example of this is Paddy Tyson's North America trip. Um, he wrote about this in his book, The Hunt for Puerto del Faglioli. What a name. And I was I, I was thinking about this today and um, he describes it, himself as being a lone Irishman coaxing his temperamental Italian motorcycle through yet another electrical breakdown. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want yep. to set off on a trip on a motorcycle that I know has a reputation for breaking down a lot. No, I mean, yeah. that's... you want something reliable. You want something that's been around for a long time, um, that's simple, that you can fix, you're comfortable fixing, or you have a massive budget and you can afford to get it trailered to a dealer and have them fix it. But you have to make that decision. Well, and like Michelle said about parts, about parts availability. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, you can always get parts. Let's let's be clear on that. Uh, a lot of people get really carried away. Yeah, but I know you can you can always DHL or something. But I mean, the thing is, yeah, how long are you going to have to wait for that? Whereas, if you get a bike that that you can get parts in the area, it, you know, it changes your situation. Absolutely. That's like people say, if you're going to go riding a motorcycle in in southern South America, then get a Honda because they make Hondas in southern South America. And I don't know whether that's still true or not. They used to make quite a lot in Brazil, didn't they? Do they still do that now? Does anybody know? they do. Hmm. Yeah, there still are some. Get tires made in Brazil as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. A lot made in Thailand now. Yeah. Brazil does a lot. Yeah, if you're just doing a single continent, something that is more suitable for that and choosing a bike that is readily available there or literally flying in and buying a local bike is also a really good way to go. I've heard many, many stories about people flying into South America and buying one of the local made in Brazil or even made in China bikes because they're using them there. Um, They're readily available. They can be fixed. Parts are available. It's not a problem. People fly into India and they buy a local Royal Enfield. Any mechanic, in, and there's 10 mechanics in every village that can fix your Royal Enfield. On the other hand, people in the know in India will tell you, buy a Honda because it's more reliable than the Royal Enfield. The Royal Enfield's cool and macho and you really want one of those. But if you just want reliable, you know, buy a Honda. And that's what people do. Is that so true now though, Grant? Still true. The The new Himalayan, the latest version of it is much, much better and they seem to be pretty good, but they don't have years of history. And if you're flying into India, you're probably going to buy an older infield 
And no, those are bad. And the worst thing about buying a used Enfield in India is that every mechanic in, in the area knows how to fix it, but his favorite tool is a bigger hammer. Mm-hmm. So quality, reliability, how often has it been repaired? It's been repaired with duct tape and a hammer and bailing wire. It's, it's really tough. Getting a used one is, is difficult in India, one that's any good. Traveling, traveling to up, um, we considered buying a bike in England and or Germany, but um, it suited us to have our bike set up so it would cope with the, the weight for two that we had a, back in those days, a wired in intercom system and lots of things that if we'd bought a, a secondhand bike at the start of our trip, we would have been faffing about for ages to get it how we wanted it, whereas we took our bike, which was perfect for us. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm the same way. Um, my bike is set up for me um, and Susan, and it works perfectly for us. And I've flown into a number of places and been loaned a bike. And yeah, it works and it's okay, but it's a, it's always a faff because it's not right. And mm-hmm. adjusting the gear yeah. lever and switch fiddling around with the handlebars and getting everything is all, all set up for me. And then handing it back to the owner who now finds that it's terrible. He hates it. Because I've messed it up. I always feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even just buying a bike, same thing. You're, like you say, you're going to be sitting there faffing with it for who knows how long to get it to suit you. And if you're two up, that's, I think that's a huge, huge thing. To make a bike work two up, take some fiddling to get it right. Solo, you can put up with a lot. Two-week vacation, whatever, or even a month vacation. Stock bike off the showroom floor is good enough. But if you're going for six months around South America, mm, okay, it starts to become a little more difficult equation. But then the We started off this conversation with it being um, your bike need, becoming your best friend and it, that's what it all comes down to in the end, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You gotta love it. Well, let's move on to um, deciding what to pack. This should be an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> Nine pairs yes, of socks. Oh, I keep tire saying. pliers are a must. <laughs> What's your tire pliers are a must, Jim? Just <laughs> 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 well, there are easier and lighter methods, Jim <laughs> and Brian. <laughs> Brian They're loves on the ice, That's true. Brian loves yes. those pliers. Yeah, they, they they work really really well. But they're so heavy and so bulky. What, what are we talking about here? The bead breakers? Uh, the can bead I just say, I don't know bead if breaker. they work well because they've never been used. <laughs> they've oh, never been used? <laughs> yeah, but Grant made the point in the last episode, we were talking about first aid kits, I think, or, or talking about taking uh, making a list of things that you pack and taking out anything you didn't use. And he said, well, does that mean you take your first aid kit out if you didn't use it in the last one? Yeah. There's some stuff you have to take. There's always yeah. an exception. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> you owe me one, Brian. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure do. So, so starting with deciding what to pack, Michelle, how do you decide what you're going to pack? Well, it, obviously part of that depends on where I'm going, how long I'm gone for, what I'm doing. Uh, but one of my must-haves always is a camera uh, and uh, plenty of disk space to, to store lots of photos along the way. Uh, first aid kit is another one. I'm big on carrying my GPS because if I'm going to be uh, traveling by myself, I want to know that, um, or even if I'm with a group, I want to know that I have the flexibility or the tools that I'm going to need to get back on my own if for some reason I'm delayed or I get separated from a group. Um, but yeah, it, 
the list varies greatly how much gear I'm going to take in terms of riding equipment, um, layers of clothing, rain gear, um, insulated or heated gear. That depends on where I'm going. If I'm going to be up at altitude or riding through cold weather, uh, those things are big things. To take a heated jacket or heated gloves takes up a lot of space. And so I have to recognize that I'm usually having to make sacrifices. So whatever I'm adding to my pile of goodies to take, I'm going to have to forego something somewhere else. And, and that's okay. I just need to make good decisions about that. Um, so yeah, I'm sure all the usuals that everybody else thinks of too with spare parts and spare tubes and chains and sprockets and filters and fuses and my tool roll, um, all of that. Those are really the essentials, the first aid kit, of course. Um, and then if I have any space at all left over, that's usually where that, um, some upgraded stuff with a camera, maybe a tripod, um, those sorts of things kind of squeeze into the little nooks and crannies where I can. Do you find yourself fussing more with your bike stuff that you're packing or your personal stuff? And I'm looking at separating those. As far as your personal things like your clothing and the things you're taking, you're, you're talking about, you know, staying warm and, and making sure you're dressed properly. Those, those are the things taking care of your body. And then there's the other things you take for your bike, all your parts and your, and your different tools and things like that. What do you fuss with more or, or do you fuss with one more? Well, I, I don't know that I probably the personal things more so because I think that the kit that I have or the list, I literally have a written list of things that I take with each bike depending on the trip. So I'll, I'll go through a checklist and that's kind of a no brainer at this point that I need to have a, a front spare tube, a rear spare tube. Um, I need, you know, some, some chain lube, whatever it is, I've got my little written checklist of things that I have. So I'm sure I used to fuss with that more and now it's kind of fine tuned and it's, it's just a tool roll that has everything in it that I'm looking for and a full set of spares. And if I take something out of it and use it somewhere down the road, then I know to replace that piece and it's just kind of a, a self-contained unit that just goes in in the bike. So if you, you had to give a, a percentage, just sort of off the cuff, of what you take that is you feel is required versus what you take that you like to take, what percentage would that be? Oh, gosh. I, I suppose, thinking in terms even of clothing being things I have to have to dress for the climate or dress for the, the weather, I'm going to say 80% is probably things I feel like I have to have. Wow. And 20% is maybe the extras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Sam? Um, I pack in, in two ways. One, based upon eat well and sleep well, means that I can stay healthy and stay alert, which allows me to make the most out of the journey. And the rest is... Um, kit for the bike but I set off on the big trip was way too many spare parts and that's all down to a very small list and um, I was sitting here with a big smile when Michelle was talking about her packing list because I think that's just such a vital thing isn't it and we all learn every time we go out on a trip stuff that should be on the list or should or no longer needs to be because it's never going to get used um, I think one of the things that also helps when somebody's planning um, as a novice about what they're going to do, or what they're going to load, is to work out whether they're planning to camp or use hotels or both, because that can quite dramatically um, 
affect the amount of gear that you're going to carry. Michelle mentioned climate too, right? Um, basic maintenance equipment. And of course, everybody needs to have a luxury item. I think we've all gr- agreed on that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the luxury item can be something completely ridiculous, but it's something that makes you smile. It makes the quality of your day better. Traveled for a while with the guy who was carrying an espresso maker and another guy who had a garlic press and, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, I think Grant mentioned earlier on um, whether people you can buy the stuff that you don't have so you can set off far lighter loaded than um, we all think when we're starting anyway. I'm always reminded of a couple who headed off from Europe. Two, two people, two bikes, and two suits each. One winter suit and one summer suit. Does that make any sense at all to you? Are we talking oh. dinner suits? Riding suit. Oh, Winter riding suit and ah. summer riding suit, both complete with armor. My God, the amount of bulk ah. that is for a complete yeah, yeah. spare suit is just insane. You know, I mean, at worst, you have your summer suit and then you put on some layers and a heated vest and whatever else you need to do. And if it's really cold, guess what? The local store has a bunch of sweaters or jumpers. You know, you can you can buy more warm stuff. You can buy long johns in a place that's cold. You don't need to carry that kind of stuff. It's just Grant, you just you just really hit a nail on the head for for novices um, to to learn from, and and that is layers. Yeah, yeah layers is everything. You shouldn't have no layer should be very thick, but you can have. It's amazing how many layers you can wear. Remember when we were in Norway, um, up in some of the higher passes, it was snowing literally in the middle of summer. We were there in I think July or something, um, and it was snowing and it was cold, but we had our heated vests on, turned on. We had a couple of layers, and we were fine. We were toasty. And I remember this guy coming up to us and saying, you must be so cold. And he was wearing this giant suit and really bulky. And he said, no, we're fine. We're quite warm. I said, how? And I showed him a switch. Just turn on the heat. Hmm. Oh. He kind of went away shaking But even head. without a heat... Even without a heated jacket, the old waterproof jacket that you wear when it's pouring with rain, you whack that on over the top of your riding jacket when it's windy. It'll cut the wind. It'll keep you much warmer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge difference. Yes. Motorcycle gear nowadays is so good. Uh, And, yeah, I agree with layers. But one thing I don't like is um, having to uh, take your gear off to put your layers inside your your your, um, your, your liners and things like that. And I just think um, over pants, over jacket are probably pretty uh, essential because you can you don't have to uh, take your jacket off if it starts to rain. You can just throw an over jacket on, um, but your jacket has got to have a lot of venting. Um, uh, things that you have to take um, when you're packing, I think. Again, it gets back to knowing your bike. What does your bike need? What what sort of riding do you do, uh, and do, what parts do you wear out? Uh, I'll give you a classic example. I wear out the back brake more than I do the front brake. So brake pads, uh, I don't need a set of front brake pads. I can travel for 70,000 kilometres without wearing out a set of brake pads. So that's nearly twice around the world. So that's okay. But I will wear out the back brake uh, pads um, more regularly. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Traction control and all the rest of it, kicking in, ABS, uh, kicking in when you're going on dirt roads. Um, so 
things like that. Know your bike. Um, one thing that I really like to take is a bike cover. It, it uh, covers your bike. It can uh, double up as a, um, a, an emergency uh, blanket, uh, layer, waterproof, whatever you want. So um, little things like that. And I've made a little note to carry an umbrella. Oh, yes. Um, I think I think an umbrella is very important for getting, keeping the sun off you if you have an accident where you can protect people or yourself. And its main purpose is to keep you dry when you're walking around. So we, we actually carry two and they fall down to nothing. So yep. uh, easy to fit in. We do exactly the same, Brian, and it's one of my favourite pieces of equipment. It's incredibly flexible, isn't it? I mean, it, it not only keeps you dry, but when it's really hot, then you're walking around in your own pool of shade. And I talk about this sometimes in yep. my presentations, and um, a guy about a year after having sat in on one of them um, messaged me to say that he'd started carrying um, uh, a, a collapsible umbrella and um, he was out doing some adventure riding with some mates, and one of his mates fell off and broke his leg. Guess what the splint was? The umbrella. Yeah, yeah, the umbrella. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. yep, yep but but, but yep. We're, we, I don't want to get too far into the details because we're, we're trying to gloss over this stuff, and, and I, I mean, all great points. But deciding what to pack, trying to figure out what to take, because that's the most difficult. Grant, you said it. I mean, every, everybody overpacks. This is something we hear universally uh, with overpacking. I was going to mention, and I'm going to jump back to that that weight carrying capacity again with the bike. I mean, something you need to figure out is, first of all, how much can you take? And then I think, Brian, you said this one time we were talking about this, about um, weighing your stuff as you go along. And I, I think that's ultimately yeah. important, isn't it, when you're you're choosing what you're going to pack is making sure that you can yeah. actually carry this stuff on your bike along with you. And, and that's everything. Like when we're talking weighing, Brian, uh, I think you'd mentioned like putting everything in there, your riding suit and everything to make sure that you're not exceeding the yeah. gross vehicle weight of the, of the bike because then people blow out suspensions when they do that. That's exactly right. You'll blow suspensions, you'll um, do all sorts of things to seals and all, all that sort of those moving parts that uh, keep the bike off the ground. So, yeah. So uh, very important, Jim. Even overloading the tires too, which most people don't even think about. Mm -hmm. Suspension, everybody can figure out. Well, most people yeah. can apparently. Uh, but tires too, you don't want to overload the tire. So you got to check what the rating is on the tire for maximum load and maximum pressure to get it. Yeah, we had a, a tire yeah. expert on the show a couple of times now. What he was saying is some of the bike, I think he mentioned the Goldwing. With him on his bike, he said his Goldwing actually, I think it exceeds the maximum weight the tires can handle. So that's something to know. That's without uh, without packing anything. He's not talking about packing. Or a passenger. Just, that's right, because he's just a big guy. And when he gets on his bike, he said he, he's maxed out. As simple as that. Yeah. So um, anything else to add here with deciding what to pack? I was going to say a credit card and uh, three pairs of jocks and socks. That's it. It's <laughs> yep. a good start. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes an awful lot of sense. Where do you keep the credit card? Special pouch, eh, Brian? Down your chops. <laughs> well, you didn't have any clothes there, so. Shirley, can you go in and pay for that gas, please? Hang on a second, says Brian. <laughs> sure. I'm just shaking the head. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Sam? Well, I'm now convinced that my nine pairs of socks have got to be lightweight socks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving rapidly on. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I'm sorry, Sam. I thought you had something meaningful to add there. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> no, not at all, Jim. Um, absolute rubbish. <laughs> 
I can well, tell people what not to, what not to do. A big what not to do, and I've seen it done, is find every packing list out there and then collate them into one list. Mm, so oh. tempting, isn't it? Because it feels like the cheat sheet. Yeah, but oh my lord, the amount of stuff that you people end up taking because of that. Yeah, yeah you just don't need it. Well, that's why I asked Michelle what percentage she was taking that was that she feels is required versus the extra things that you like to take. And, and Sam, you said, you've said that many times about how, you know, you need some, some extra things, you know, you'll need this, something with you. And we're all entitled to that, I guess. But you have to figure out what you, what you're, you're required to take, like those things that you actually need and get those things in there first. And then I guess figure out how much space you have left. And then the thing we haven't talked about is actually leaving some space for other things along yes, the way. Yes, please. Please leave some space for extra things like food and water when you need it. Right. And uh, packing a saddlebag that is absolutely chock full, perfect, redoing it on the road, especially after customs has told you to empty everything and you've got to put it all back in again. What a pain. You yeah. want spare room. It's like buying one of those things that are packaged in China. They have this incredible ability to pack things so efficiently. And then you open it up and there's no way you'll ever get it back in the box. Yeah, they use vacuum and packing machines. Yeah. <laughs> People say to me, um, you know, when we're on the subject of, of luggage, um, about roll bags, and I always say to them, look, get a roll bag that's half again as big as you think you're going to need and then don't fill half of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, as, as Grant just said, you know, you're going to buy food along the way. You're going to buy a souvenir. You're going to buy that extra sweater. And then you're suddenly going to get a warm day. Well, what do you do? Throw it away knowing that it's still going to be cold in two days' time? No, you've got to have somewhere to store it. So that's... That roll bag is the ultimate flexible piece of equipment. Um, buy something that's bigger than you think you're going to need and don't fill half of it. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Yep, okay. Perfect. Well, I, I think we, we've, we've done, sorry, does anyone have anything to add there? Okay. Uh, I think we've, we've done that. Um, budgeting. Now, budgeting, there's another big question. How much is enough? There's, there's so many things in here and we do have to gloss over this. I know we're running long already. How do you, how does anyone have a rough formula of how to figure out your budget? <laughs> Where are you going first? Yeah. You're going to do the USA or Europe. Uh, it's a very different number than it's going to be in Southeast Asia or parts of South America. It's a huge difference. But I think the biggest thing about budget is where are you going and what's your personal budget? Some people are traveling on very, very little and doing it as cheap as they possibly can and sleeping under bridges and using a tarp for a tent. I won't mention any names. And some people are staying in five-star hotels every night. Everybody's different. You have to decide what's, what's your number, where you are at. But those are costs that you can adjust, you know, through your choices. And, I, and you, the, the point you made, I think, is, is probably the, the place we'll have to start is you're figuring out where you're going. So what are the expenses in those areas? And I think, Sam, you mentioned this before in another episode about looking at some of those costs because you can check costs like hotels and camping and fuel and yep. visas and border crossing. You can check that in advance. All of that in advance. You can do um, a monthly travel insurance percentage. You can add in a percentage for shipping your bike. Uh, you can get advanced quotes for the different sections that you may have to ship your bike. And that also helps you in advance to build up a connection with particular companies so that when you're actually in, coming towards a stage where you want to ship your bike, you've already got that relationship built. But a percentage for um, repairs and spares, an amount for food. And again, you can work out in advance. Um what sort of food prices there are, but um, you also have to work out what sort of food you want to eat. 
Now, our attitude is we eat what food's on offer, we bargain if we're in countries where we're bargaining's appropriate, and we cook for ourselves. We don't often eat out in restaurants and takeaways and so on, but of course there are some countries where actually it's a darn sight cheaper to eat from the street stores than it is to, to cook for yourself. But we take all of those key points, we double it, and then we add a percentage for fun and the unexpected. And we reckon we always travel for a lot less on that. Um, but that means that we've just got a little bit more for a, a bigger jolly somewhere along the way. But our budget allows us to take in for virtually every eventuality. You said double it. Why do you double it? Because you've, nobody really knows what they're going to encounter when they're out on the road. And yes, you can do the research in, in advance. So let's say you reckon that it's going to cost you from the research that you've done $45 a day to, 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 tra- to travel. Um, and then you, when you get there, you find that the rate currency exchange rate has changed and all of a sudden your currency isn't worth as much in that country. Those sorts of things can come along the way. So if you double what you think you're going to need as a core basic need, then that gives you the flexibility to actually have a bit more smile time. And I did a post on Horizons Unlimited the other day um, where I was talking about traveling in expensive countries, you know, in European developed develop world countries. And one of the things that I put was, um, don't drink beer. Um, and I, I know that Brian and Shirley are completely outraged by me um, with this. And I think there was something like 15 negatives to my don't drink beer on this thread because people were horrified. But my attitude towards that is if I've got a skinny wallet, I'm not going to drink beer because every beer I drink is the equivalent to, let's say... 30 kilometers worth of exploring. But that's just me and everybody has to work out their own budget to take in what they actually want and the quality of life that they want when they're on the road. I thought you were going to say just drink whiskey. There's more bang for the buck. (laughs) Well, actually, I've just taken a really large mouthful of silt. That sounds disgusting, doesn't it? It But actually, it's a very fine German whiskey from one of the islands off the north coast of Germany. It's very tasty. Mm. I highly recommend it. Michelle, how about you? Oh, well, yeah, I I think everybody's making really valid points. It depends so much on where I'm going, on the style of writing I'm doing. Partially, too, if I'm traveling alone or traveling with someone, if you're traveling with someone and you can share the cost of maybe a room in a hostel or um, the, the cost of a tent site or a hotel room or what have you, that certainly makes a difference. But if you're traveling solo, then suddenly that cost is is all yours to bear. So it's something that you need to bear in mind. Um you know, I, I was a person who wanted to experience things when I went. So I wanted to go buy the ticket to go see Chichen Itza or take the train up as opposed to riding um, to go up to Machu Picchu because at the time that we were in Cusco, there was a mudslide. So you couldn't actually ride out to the hydroelectric plant and park your bike. You had to take the train from Cusco. And so it was a bit of an expense that was unforeseen. But those were things that um, I definitely wanted to splash out for because I didn't want to miss the experiences. So um, I built in a little bit of money into my travel budget and I didn't really know what to expect when I went out. I was kind of aiming for 40 to $45 a day and I was able to just maintain that. That included all of my insurance, uh, my flights, because I did some some extras that included actually um, when I was in Ecuador, being able to fly out for a few days to uh, uh, the Galapagos. 
But for the most part, you know, I, I cooked and did not eat in restaurants unless it was, you know, street food or something that was fairly bargained. There was certainly the odd, you know, occasion like a birthday or a treat or some, you know, special thing where I went out with friends. Um, but I tried to keep my budget kind of to a minimum, but also at at the point where I felt like I was still making the most of and enjoying the trip fully. And I was able to do some research online to see what some other numbers were. I think that's a great resource for people that are researching trips and wanting to know. There's a lot of people that are willing to share that information. There's a lot of budgets out there that you can can find and obviously adjust um, for the current uh, expense. And, and as Sam mentioned, you can check out current pricing on some of those things to make sure that that's up to date. For your trip to South America, did you leave with a budget number in your mind? And then when you came back, did, did you meet it? Did you, did you exceed it? Well, my, my scenario is a little bit different because, again, I planned to go on the road for six to 12 months and I was gone uh, two years because of my break. So uh, my, my accident. So that changed the timeline completely. And I think I had planned on maybe spending $10,000 for that first year. And I wound up spending, um, for me, it was about just over 30,000 for the two years. So there were certainly a lot of extras in there. So Sam's double it thing makes a lot of sense. It does. Yeah. It worked, it worked that way for me. Brian. Well, really we sort of had a, uh, a figure in mind to spend per day, but basically doubled it. And that's, that's what, um, Sam suggested and I think it depends how you travel and, and uh, we did the same as Michelle went out to Galapagos and things like that but we budgeted for that we're travelling to see sites as well as travelling on a motorcycle so you've got to allow a fair bit of fat uh, in your budget uh, but you can tailor um, the cloth to fit of course in any way shape or form And you know, for example we didn't carry any camping gear in um, South America because you know, accommodation is pretty cheap, but when we got into America, we wanted camp, wanted to go and camp, um, and uh, we we did a bit of that as we headed up to Alaska. So, you know, you, you can cl- cut the cloth to fit. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's travelling two up on one bike. It becomes a completely different scenario. Um, when we carried the camping gear and cooking gear and everything, we are loaded to the max. Um, when we did our first trip, we looked at camping gear and once you got out of Europe, everywhere we were staying was really cheap. So we didn't bother with camping gear. We did use it a lot in um, North America and Canada and Alaska. Um, and when we did our trip across Russia, we used it once. Mm. Yeah. In, si- in six months. So So you're saying it was it's, it's, it's horses for courses. No, no, not, not really. No, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. no. We could have survived that night that we did. We did. We camp. could have. We could have, we could have survived. Yeah. Sure. But, but also, we don't. We're in a different position because we're older. When we did our first trip, um, Brian was on long service leave for a year, so we were getting um, paid a portion of his salary. So that made travelling a lot easier when you had a regular income coming in, and um, yeah, so. It's, it's different for for us than if we'd done our trips when we were 20, like when, when we when yeah. we did our, when we started travelling overseas, just flying in somewhere and then travelling by trains and buses, we used to try and, you know, keep everything as cheap as possible because of 
our income and our our, our situation. Yeah, budgeting, it seems like one of those things that we, I guess we can just go on and, and on with. I think we've, we've got some some good tips here one for One thing, it. though, Jim, if I could just yeah. if I could just add one thing. Have some access to emergency funds, be it a credit card. I know Grant has talked about this in the past, that they've used credit card to get them out of strife. Yeah. If you've got a card that, you know, of course you're going to have to pay it back eventually, but somewhere that if you really get stuck, you've got some cash or access to some money. Or if you are somewhere special like Ecuador and there's a cheap trip going out to Galapagos that you can afford to see one of the most pristine environments left in the world that may not remain pristine forever. Right. Just those little extra things. It's it's a really good point, actually. Um, I, I was just sitting there thinking about it while you were talking, Shirley, and I was, you know, I've always travelled with an emergency buffer zone. And this is a value of money that I put to one side that I do not touch unless something has gone wrong. And I learned to do that having got back from one trip, just completely maxed out on my credit cards. And it was such a painful experience paying them all back. Um, and having met people who were traveling on a very tight budget and had no buffer zone, when things went wrong for them, life was miserable. It was really, really not a nice place to be. But having this buffer zone just gives you that peace of mind that you could take advantage of an opportunity, but also that you're there if something goes pear-shaped. And I finished the eight-year trip with a thousand pounds left, and I could have stayed out on the road longer. Um, But that thousand pound buffer zone had stayed with me. And the peace of mind of it was absolutely fantastic. And actually to come home at the end of the trip with a thousand pounds meant that I could go out for a, a few beers with my mates and I had enough to pay a deposit on somewhere to live and, you know, things like that. So it's it's a useful thing. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say, to get settled again. Yeah. A little bit of money mm-hmm. to get settled again. Coming back with zero is a problem. Yeah, mm, yeah. it's hard. Unless you've yeah. got some fear. Yeah. Budgeting, I want to throw in just one important point. Sure. Travel speed is inversely proportional to cost. Oh, absolutely. Words, the, the faster you go, the more it's going to cost you. Yep. And not just fuel either because you're tired, so you're going to stay in a restaurant more often or you're going to stay in a hotel more often. Mm. Um, you're not going to sp- take the time to find a campsite and ch- camp somewhere wild or cheap. You're not going to take the time to go into a market and bargain and, and get the prices down on local food and then cook it. If you're in a hurry, you're trying to travel and get too much ground, it's going to cost you double, triple at least. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about budgeting. If you reduce your mileage and increase your time, you can probably do as much uh, more time out on the road than you would if you're doing the same distance in half the time. Totally agree. Great tip. Yeah. Okay. okay um, I, we're running long here. I think we should wrap this up with time and distance. Or, or should I say time versus distance? And I, I think you, you sort of said it right there. I mean, do we have anything else to add to that? Nope. <laughs> no, not really. I, I, you know, it's just a personal thing, isn't it, really? Um, how much time have you got to do time. it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the time yeah. distance for, for budget was a, was an excellent point. That really, that, I think that really, that's solidified that. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Is there anything that you guys feel that we we should have had in here that we should have talked about we should have mentioned and that we didn't one of the things that people say to me just while we're still sort of on time a distance is how many miles a day should i do 300 400 
And my first reaction to that is, well, a lot's going to depend on where you're riding. You can cover an awful lot more miles in the United States than you can in India. But let's say you're planning to do a three-year round-the-world trip. Budget between, I reckon, 100 and 150 miles a day as an average. And there'll be some days where you'll do um, 350 miles and there'll be other days where you do 50 miles. But that sort of 100, 150 miles a day helps you to, to plan how much fuel you're likely to use, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, our shortest d- distance in one day was 10 miles. Mm-hmm. Yep, we've done went around the, we Packed up, went around the corner, and oh, this was in New Zealand, and we can take a helicopter ride to the top of the glacier. How cool is that? So we yep. found another campsite. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is, um, I, I guess, that word again that seems to come up a lot is flexibility. Yep, serendipity. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And that's and, and back to what we were talking about there. And Michelle was talking about her her cards that ran out, and she was she had already arranged to have someone back at home to take care of that. That's all part of that, isn't it? You know, making sure that you do as much as you can before you go, and that you have somebody to rely on that might be able to do, to do that for you. Yep. Nice. Let's move into plugs, shall we, Michelle? What do you have to plug? Oh well, um, I am working on a new business. We started it actually just about a year ago. It's called Rev Sisters and Rev Sisters um, is the the creation of myself and two other women that I met through Women Writers World Relay. Um, so seven of the admin team, we were on weekly calls and for about 18 months working on this World Relay event that just finished this last February. And three of us became such good friends that uh, we decided to start a business that celebrates all things moto, um, all things two-wheeled. And we, we're just kind of starting with a few events this year. We put together three uh, motorcycle film festivals. The original intent was to have those be live events, but of course, with COVID, we've pivoted and adapted those to be online events. Um, They are free. We've had two already this year. One was the Santa Cruz Moto Festival this last spring. Um, I had the Black Hills Moto Film Festival in August, and then we have an upcoming one, the South Jersey Moto Film Festival um, that's airing, I guess, in early December. So we're super excited about that. Again, it's free for anybody who wants to sign in and watch a variety of films from every sort of riding style and bike project. There's there's uh, a, a variety of films and, and I'll leave it at that. Just come check it out. And you can get tickets at RevSisters.com. Very nice. Now you said business and you're saying it's free. How does that work? <laughs> well, we haven't figured it out, <laughs> figured it out yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the online doesn't really cost us a lot. We have been really fortunate enough to have a couple of sponsors come in with just enough funding to help us get the website, the platform up and running and hosting and hopefully buy us a year of time to get uh, back to a place where we can do live events in the future. And we'd like to grow those. But for now, we're, we're trying to share that with people that are at home, people under lockdown. It gives us all something to look forward to in a way of uh, mentally escaping uh, when we can't be out riding ourselves. So yeah, very nice. Well, Rev Sisters, you you can cash in now while um while they're not charging anything. You can't beat that. I mean, <laughs> right. That link can will I be just in our show notes. Go ahead, Sam. 
can I just say on that? Um, I, I watched the films from the Santa Cruz uh, Film Festival, and there were some absolutely cracking films there, films that I never would have come across before. Um, it is absolutely well worth getting involved in this and, and, and booking a ticket for it. Um, and it's bearing in mind that this is a new business um, for the, the trio. They're doing a cracking job. It's, it's really, really nicely coming together. Very impressive. Thank you, Sam. That's very kind of you. And yeah, we, we've been so excited about it. There are films that we wouldn't have seen, and there are some that are just crazy and strange and whatever, but some that are so inspiring. And it's, it's just been so much fun. Yeah, I like that. Um, Shirley, what do you have? Oh, sorry, Jim, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> sure. Oh, we're not doing anything. <laughs> no, look, I'll, I'll have a little shout out and a, and a plug for um, people who have come out of lockdown here in Victoria and across Australia. Country businesses are really struggling after this, this lockdown and I'm getting a group of mates together and we're heading up into the, the country areas to make sure that we spend a bit of money there and get businesses back on their feet. So this is a general shout out to everyone who wants to get out and um, travel on their motorcycle while the weather's good here in Australia. Please do so and please get out there and spend money at those great places that we love um, travelling around, particularly our high country and out into our deserts and all those little places and pubs and and campsites and um, beautiful sites that we've got um, down in um, all, all around our coastline. So please just get out and do it. Yeah, and, and I guess stopping at those little spots, you'll you'll see things you wouldn't have otherwise seen. And I think that's 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 universal as things start to open up for any areas. Yeah, we went to a little country town, and we were the we were the only people staying in this little mum and dad motel, which is a beautiful little spot down at Apollo Bay. And um, the place is clean and tidy and cheap, and all the rest of it. And they just said, "Oh, please, 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 put something on TripAdvisor and get people to come down here." You know, they're, they're really struggling. So, yeah. you know, it's very important. Sam, what do you have? May I be greedy, please, and do two? Um, one of them is in line with what Brian's just been saying. I heard to my horror today that the British Motorcycle Museum um, has had to be closed for so long because of COVID-19, they are actually having to sell off the motorcycles from the collection to keep open. Oh, no. That's horrible. Wow. They are raffling um, the motorcycles. Um, I'll send you the um, the link for um, uh, the the raffle. Can I just please ask everybody that the raffle tickets are only two pounds each, but this museum is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, it doesn't deserve to die. It deserves that all of us motorcyclists get our acts together and and buy even if it's one ticket for two pounds. Um, hey, you may end up with a Norton or or an Enfield or just something magic. Um, so, yeah, um, please click that link and um, buy yourself a is, raffle ticket or two. Sam, is this the one in Birmingham, near Birmingham? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's where we're going to be. Send me that link, Sam. Yeah. Because we could always win a motorbike and donate it back to them so it stays on display oh, if it's only going to cost oh, you two quid. That yeah. That's yeah. I was just thinking idea. the same thing. Yes. That's brilliant. Absolutely. So if you if you're from another country, that would be that would make perfect sense as well. You know, you buy it for the two pounds and then donate it back. Wow, 
great idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No. Awesome. My next plug, um, thank you for not minding, is completely selfish. And I always find this hard to do, but it is November and Christmas isn't far away. So I'm hoping that um, listeners, well, with one or more of my books might end up on their Christmas list, either for themselves or something to buy um, for a friend. Um, signed copies of my four books are available direct from me with free delivery if you live in the UK. But if you're living outside of the UK, then the best place to get them from is the book depository. Um, that, that's free worldwide delivery, which I think is just fantastic. And they're all available in audio books as well. Um, and they're available from Audible, Audible and iTunes and an increasingly n- number of um, new outlets too. I was surprised to see this week. Uh, you can also find the links to the three T-shirts um, that are now available um, on my website. Um, and those are available for um, the UK, the EU, and for North America. And um, yeah, hopefully I'm being helpful with your Christmas shopping lists. Um, anyway, the links will be in the show notes. And thank you very much. Cheers. Sam, the book depository, what's the website for that? Is it just bookdepository.com? The bookdepository.com. Um, oh. And you just plunk my name on it and there you are you, you said um, the book depository.com yeah the book depository okay all right i'll That's send good. the link um to um, of course we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes yeah mm. grant but, um, sorry sorry i just wanted to mention i actually just ordered another uh, another copy of uh into africa of sam's and got one of his new t-shirts the new design i have to say it's here in my hands and it's lovely and soft and i love the design so thank you sam for getting it over to me so quickly oh brilliant well, thank what, you very much michelle Cheers. what a great testimonial that's great because I, I was making fun of sam on the last episode because he was talking about <laughs> these shirts He's, he spent so much time trying to find the shirts with the right material to make sure they're i mean that's what Sam is oh, like. I we, all, we all know Sam. He's he's <laughs> like that. You know, he wants you to get the best. He wants to sell you something that's the best. But so it's so nice to hear you say that because he was Boy, saying you could it didn't crease and and it, the fabric was good and all this stuff. And I was sort of razzing him about it. No, good for you for teasing him. But I have to say good for Sam for putting the work into it because it's a lovely t-shirt. So yeah, I will fantastic. enjoy that a lot. Thank you, Michelle. I have to say, I'm I'm getting a lot of laughter flung in my direction. Somebody suggested <laughs> to me the other day that if I'm going to do books and t-shirts, then what about aftershave? Well, I've come up <laughs> for a name for it. It's going to be called Quattro Dias because I think that sounds quite nice, four days. But I'm not quite sure whether the scent of four-day armpit on the road is going to go down very well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, you don't look like a person that uses aftershave. <laughs> Because he doesn't shave? Exactly. <laughs> That's the one. That's why the smile's even bigger. <laughs> Grant, what have you got? Oh, I've got a couple of things as well. I'll make them both short. How's that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Since it's Christmas, and Sam just reminded me of that, I would like everybody to have a look at The Achievable Dream. I know a lot of you have already bought The Achievable Dream in the past, but uh, it's a wonderful Christmas present. Uh, the number of people that have bought it for Christmas, I remember one couple bought the series and then said, well, we'll just have a quick look just on Christmas Eve. And they spend the next 24 hours watching it almost straight through. So it keeps people going, it gets you excited, and there's a lot of the things that we've talked about today are answered in there, discussed in there by a number of different people or different ideas and ideas and way to how you do things. Uh, it's a great series to get you going. It's, it's the primer and really virtually everything you need to know to plan a big trip around the world or even just a trip to the next country or the next continent. So there's a lot of great stuff in there and you can still just 
barely got it time to get it in time for Christmas. So Horizons Unlimited, go to the store, horizonsunlimited.com slash store, and you can order it there. Or you can go on to amazon.com.co.uk, .ca, whatever, and you can order it there as well. Very and cool. the second one I've got is, since we've been talking about uh, places to go and where are you going to go, destinations was a subject we talked about briefly. We've set up a system on our website for destinations. We've already got in the database uh, 6,000 border crossings and I think almost 1,000 um, destinations, places you would like to go, places that are really exciting and interesting to see, festivals like Michelle was saying, events of interest, uh, accommodation, mechanic shops, all those kind of points of interest to a motorcycle traveler. So we've got a whole lot in there now and we would really like for you to put in your favorite places. Everybody listening to this lives somewhere, and somewhere in your area are some really cool places that you think travelers would like to know about, whether it's a repair shop that's really good, or it's a super interesting point of interest, a site. Um, there's lots of places that people would be interested in seeing. So spend a few minutes, go to horizonsunlimited.com slash destinations, and you can enter in your favorite places, or you can go through and pick out what some other people have put in. And there's a link you can click to add it to your own personal file. And then you can click and get yourself a GPX track of all those points. So something to be able to help you plan your trip around the world. You found all these wonderful places, all these places I really have to see. And you've got a GPX file with all those points of interest in it. So it makes it nice and easy for travelers. So we really appreciate you helping out, and we hope you enjoy getting all the cool places that are already in there. Well, that is great, and I know we've run long. We've we've got a quite a, a long show on this one. We covered a lot of things. I just want to throw in here that um, there's also books available with Shirley and Brian. Uh, Michelle, we mentioned that. Michelle's book, we're going to have a link into the show notes. Shirley and Brian, maybe you can send me the link as well for yours uh, because Christmas is coming, and uh, there's certainly um, people looking for those type of things, and, and you guys have, uh, have great books for them to get. Now, I, I guess that um, that's going to wrap things up. I, oh, b before we, we do, I just want to say, Michelle, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure having you, and, and we really enjoyed having you. So um, it's, it's great. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to say the same thing I said last time because I genuinely mean it. It is so much fun to get to hang out with the cool kids for a day. So thank you. <laughs> Delighted to have you. You're a cool kid, too. <laughs> thank you very much, everyone. Great show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Grant Field lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of audiobooks and written books that chronicle his journeys. Uh, he also has uh, t-shirts and other things that he sells on his website at grantfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date traveling information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. 
Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com.